This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Lucky for you, even luckier for me. That's right. It's been two weeks already, and once again, it is Space Night. Uh, That is right. It is time for our bi-monthly, or semi-monthly, sit down with the man that, uh, I don't want to say he knows space better than anyone, but I do feel very comfortable in saying that he makes space more interesting than anyone that speaks about it on the radio. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. And you can also check out his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, at the Red Apple Podcast Network. Steve I can't believe it's been two weeks already, but on the other, on the one hand, but on the other hand, I can because I've been jonesing to talk with you. I have a long list of things that I want to bring up with you. Well, good morning, Frank. Good morning to the listeners. And as I like to call it, with your okay, the infinite side of midnight for this particular hour as we talk about these things that are above us. And getting our minds away from the political nature of the world right now. How about that? Uh, Move into the unknown. I'm looking for any excuse to get away from the political (laughs) nature of things and get into the unknown. Uh, This is a show where we like to explore the mysteries of the world, the mysteries of the universe. And I think the infinite side of the midnight captures this hour to a T. By the way, if people have questions for Steve throughout the hour on anything related to space, anything related to astronomy, even a couple of aviation questions we'll try and get in. You're welcome to give us a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve, I have marked my calendar for the year 2046 because I'm wondering if that's the year it all comes to an end, not just for me, but for the whole planet. Rumor has it that uh, there's going to be another asteroid passing our way in the year 2046. How worried do we need to be? Well, not really that worried. I mean, the astronomers are giving us, and we'll talk a little more in detail about this, on something called the Torino scale. It's a scale, of course, from 0 to 10, which talks about the probability the higher the number, the more dangerous the object. But here's the backstory on this particular object that now astronomers are telling us may come, well, it will come close to the Earth, but we don't know for sure what will happen. It's identified as 2023, the letter DW. The object was discovered back on February the 26th by astronomers in Chile at one of these gigantic, as I like to call them, megapixel cameras. Imagine having a mirror like, say, 100 inches in diameter or more and having the capability to have that incredible resolution on it. So they find out the object has a 271-day orbital period around the Earth. Well, that's not the problematic thing. They project in the future that February the 14th, the day of love as it should be in 2046, this particular object has already been given, now here's the interesting part, a track, a probability track that if it were, underline the word if it were, words if it were, to strike the Earth, the inclination of this object coming in over the Earth would take it over Indonesia, the Pacific Ocean, here in the southwestern USA where I am, and lower parts of the central U.S., 
But this particular object, as we know now, just passed the Earth back on February the 18th at about 5.4 million miles. So the good news, and this is interesting, and again, we like to talk facts here, that it has a 99.8% chance of missing the Earth. But again, why they're even talking about this, it may have, of course, a little bit too early in the orbital elements. You know, lots can happen in what? I guess that's 23 years in the future. Just think what we were doing back in year 2000. So we'd have to wait all this time to take a, a peek at this asteroid. But this Torino scale was developed by scientists. Zero means no hazard. And not to go through every single one of these, a number one on the Torino scale would be, well, a routine discovery with an object that passes but doesn't present any real danger. If you go up to the level two, well, it may be something that we should start paying attention to in the sense that it gets closer and then it gets up to number three, where we really have to start paying attention. But the highest of these Torino scale numbers so far happened to go to an asteroid, which we still need to be watching. It's the asteroid known as Apophis in 2029. It will come extremely close to the Earth. But why am I even talking about this with the audience and with you about 2023 DW? Here's the interesting fact. This is not a tiny asteroid. This object has a size, the one we're talking about, 2023 DW, Frank, of about 130 to 200 feet in diameter. Now, here in Arizona, I don't know how many of the listeners have had a chance to see it. It's a great place to go. It's the Arizona Meteor Crater, which allegedly was formed 50,000 years ago by a 200-foot-in-diameter nickel iron object, which created this incredible mileish-plus-size crater in the Earth, one of the freshest craters on Earth. But it's reminiscent of what happened by a long time ago, on June 30th of 1908. Many people may know of an event called the Tunguska event. Now, this was an asteroid-like body, which probably didn't hit the Earth, but exploded over the Earth, and its size was comparable to the DW one we're talking about. So what happened, even when that asteroid, if that was an asteroid, a comet body, we don't know, in 1908, it detonated above the ground, they say. And the heat, get a load of this, in recorded annals, was, was you know, reported that people felt the heat. Those people were incinerated that were close to it, plus animals. 40 miles away from ground zero, similar to that of a 12-megaton nuclear device exploded in the atmosphere. So the answer to bottom line is, no, I don't think we really have to worry. But then again, things change dynamically because of things in celestial mechanics, the changeability of orbits. So we'll keep you posted. So stay tuned, right? <laughs> now, remind folks what NASA has done in terms of uh, beefing up its asteroid defense systems to make sure we don't have a, a, a danger like they had in the movie Deep Impact or the movie Absolutely. Armageddon or Asteroid with Sean Connery. Sure. Well, you have to give NASA credit. The DART mission that just successfully, as they say, I never really read the entire report because I don't think there was a detailed report yet. I think the analysis, and they're still figuring out what really happened. But what happened? This impactor hit a small binary asteroid, the little asteroid called Didymos. And we saw the imaging of when it crashed. It was amazing. You see this video of like a 4K or 8K camera as it gets closer and closer, and then you start to see the rubble pile, and then the, you know, the video goes into snow because it impacted. It left some kind of a trail in space. So the astronomers and scientists are saying, if it's yes or no, did it succeed in its mission? The answer is yes. But remember, it's going to take a lot more than a tiny impactor. That object was pretty small. It might have been maybe a couple of hundred feet in diameter, but it still had a deflection capability 
but we still don't really know how to do this with any precision. It's it's very early. Gotcha. It's like way before the Wright brothers flew. It's like just taking gliders out before we get to big jets that have jet engines. Uh, talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, if you have a question, you could call in 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve, I think when the, the first name that we think of when we hear the term luxury cars or when we think of great yeah. Grey Poupon commercials, or right. even um, very dramatic scenes in the first Back to the Future movie, we think of, or actually the second Back to the Future movie, we think of Rolls Royce. We don't necessarily think of Rolls Royce when it comes to space travel. However, apparently Rolls Royce has been working on something very big that could help us do some serious lunar exploration. What is Rolls-Royce doing, and, and why are they doing it? Well, the history of that we could go through, but we don't have time. But if we look at the aircraft, like the great Merlin engines of World War II, if we look at the jet engines that are on, like, these 777 aircraft and others, they make a good product. So the British Space Agency is teaming up with some funding, with Rolls-Royce of all people, to develop a small nuclear reactor that could be sent to the moon for future South Pole habitation modules. In other words, when they hopefully go to the moon with Artemis III and we send people back to the moon, they're going to have to have a place to live. So what they're doing, and this is in conjunction with the technology that they've developed for the British nuclear submarines, for the nuclear engines, and I should say nuclear engines, nuclear propulsion, and nuclear reactors. So this is quite fascinating to even think about a small reactor that could be actually sent up into space, deployed on the surface of the moon, and give us, instead of depending on just the sunlight that comes from these areas on the south pole of the moon, let's say you're at the bottom of a crater and you're in the dark because the sunlight never gets there, you would put these big masts up on top of the mountain and you would get sufficient, possibly sufficient solar power. But now here's a way to sustain the power on the surface of the moon. And again, that's a, an amazing feat of technology. And I have to repeat, it's not a fusion-type reactor. It's a nuclear fission-type reactor, but still, we don't have one up there yet. No, well, uh, so what do we think the timetable for actually having this reactor up and running and doing its thing might be? Best guesstimate from the articles and things that I've scoured, and I'm sure people out there have read in some detail, probably maybe as early as the early 2030s, maybe sooner. But uh, we have to get the ability to go there first and set up, a, you know, a base camp, like we would set up a tent in a primitive location where no people have been before. We've got to start somewhere. So that's pretty much the timeline. And obviously getting it there, uh, that's the next step as we move toward our habitation of the moon itself. A fascinating story. You know, we're um, seeing all sorts of cool images thanks to this James Webb telescope. Uh, I saw an image just this week of a, a star 15,000 light years away, uh, essentially dying, going nova. And sure. it has raised a lot of questions about sort of the bigness of the universe, the origins of the universe. What have we learned either through these uh, James Webb images or anything else that we've seen of late about sort of the Big Bang theory and, for lack of a better term, the theory of everything? Well, it's interesting you bring this up. I mean, Big Bang, I like to just clarify, you know, people can decide what they want to call it, but I like to call it the big expansion. And the simple reason is we weren't around to see an explosion. It was an expansion in all infinite directions, let's say. It came out and it just started from an infinite single point of mass. But if we believe, Frank, that the universe was created 13.77 billion years ago, 
and to respond to your commentary on the and question and queries on this James Webb telescope. It's been able to peer back as early as about 700,000 uh, years into the past time, you know, after this expansion. And that's amazing because how close are we ever going to get? Are we ever going to get a blank image that shows a dot? I doubt it. But the conundrum that we have in the universe right now, here, here's a couple of con, you know, concerns that not only quantum physicists have, but astronomers and anybody studying space. We have this conundrum, this thing in space called dark matter. And if you would take the whole pie of 100% of what's out there, some 22%, not to be exact, but approximate, is this invisible component of gravity. And what's so amazing about it is, I've mentioned this many times on this program, that an astronomer who never got her PhD by, you know, a bunch of men that didn't want her to get one, she pursued it and she actually succeeded. But her greatness, this is Vera Rubin we're talking mm -hmm. about. She talked about this concept of how gravity in these galaxies moves or something makes galaxies. It's found in galaxies. It's some kind of an invisible component of gravity. Now, that's dark matter. Then we get to the stranger one called dark energy, and about 74%, Frank, of our universe is made up of this even more bizarre-sounding stuff from quantum physics. What could it be in the simplest explanation? How about a negative pressure in the universe, opposite gravity, that's doing something that's even more bizarre. Like we always say, you throw a rock in a compound, the ripples go out and then they fade away. Well, as far as the objects farther out into the universe, we would imagine that the universe expansion should slow down. Well, something in gravity, which we really don't understand, I've had the luxury, maybe you've had it too, of interviewing so many of these people who are at the cutting edge of these topics. You know, Dr. Kip Thorne at Caltech, a Nobel Prize winner, we just get, the, not blank stares, but the truth is nobody really understands the concept. But remember, and this is not depressing, the rest of the universe, if you add up 74 and 22, the rest of the universe, if you're looking for the 100%, is the 4%. And that's something called baryonic matter. That's everything that you and I are made of, everything in electromagnetism, all the electrons and protons, the stuff we can basically, I hate to use the word see, but we have a better feel to and better understanding than dark matter and dark energy. And then it goes off onto another thing, and I'll be brief. Astronomers and physicists and quantum physicists are trying to bring Einstein's relativity theory, special angelina relativity, into an understanding of quantum physics. And by the way, Einstein was not originally a big fan of quantum physics. He, he, would, he tried to prove and disprove it many, many times, but his theories, you know, general and special relativity, have basically played out to be fairly darn accurate. Well, why was that? Why was Einstein reluctant to get on board the quantum physics uh, bandwagon? Well, that's a very interesting question because he never had the ability to really quantify, I mean, not to overly use the word quantum physics, no pun intended, he never had the ability to quantify any of this stuff because his simple term, I mean, this is almost laughable, but I think it's so cool because if you read so many of the quotes of Einstein, you know, he had such common sense and he was such a genius, but he referred to this force in the universe that was, you know, not identifiable as, get a load of this, and I quote, spooky action at a distance. But his real reason was it didn't seem to fit into the realm mathematically. See, everything, everything that Einstein did, this is so amazing. I, I, I wish I was smart enough to be able to do this on my own, and everybody out there listening, maybe they have the ability. When you study this kind of material or stuff in space and, and physics, it's all done, Frank, by something called thought experiments. 
So in other words, you're delving deeper and deeper in the mind of all these theoretical things. It's not necessarily just on paper. It's all these things called thought experiments. So Einstein was basically more, he wants empirical evidence to show things. They have to balance. But the problematic thing in quantum physics is, guess what? The one-in-one, as we call it in the, in the real world, that adds up to two, may not, when you study the depth of quantum physics, those same rules that we simply have somehow don't measure. So the theory of everything is, I think, almost an impossibility. It's like talking about God. And if you could actually dial God up and say, okay, give us the story of what the theory of everything right. is, that's the great secret. Yeah. Uh, talking with Steve Cates, uh, we're going to get to your calls a little bit later. 800-848-9222. If you want to start queuing up, that's 800-848-9222. Uh, speaking of that James Webb uh, telescope, what images have you seen that you're particularly uh, take it with, if any? Well, the, one, the most amazing one I've seen is something called the Einstein cross. And what is that? It's like if you took two objects in space that are very close together, Einstein predicted that gravitation warps space-time, and it actually warps space images. So what you see is two objects, say vertical, and on the opposite side, you see two more objects that are making what looks like a cross or an X, if you want to look at it that way. So those are the most amazing things I've seen, which actually proves what Einstein did when he went to a total solar eclipse, I believe, in 1919. He theorized that if we looked at the sun during totality, the planet Mercury, which we know would be right on the edge of the sun when it was eclipsed, you know, you take a picture. They found out that the measurements that Einstein made proved the theory that a great gravitational source like the sun does indeed warp space-time. So the image of Mercury, its position simply, was shifted. And that goes all the way out to the farthest edges of the universe. People should look it up. Look up the Einstein cross image, and you'll see what I'm talking about, something called gravitational lensing. It's really bizarre. All right, we're going to continue with Steve Cates in just a moment. Uh, if you haven't seen this story, the Earth just dodged one of the fastest coronal mass ejections ever. If you don't know why you should be breathing a sigh of relief, we'll explain why in just a moment. This is the infinite side of midnight with Frank Morano and Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We'll take as many of your calls as we can, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight. Right ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely out in space. On such a timeless flight, and I think it's going to be a long, long time. Built 
touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am. That's right. Today is none other, is the birthday of none other than what I, the man I consider to be not only the greatest thespian of all time, but one of the greatest personalities of all time, whether we're talking actors, filmmakers, musicians, the one and only William Shatner, or as I like to call him, Bill, is 92 years old today. And I got to tell you, at 92 years old, uh, this man who is very passionate about a lot of the issues we're discussing related to space, space exploration, uh, all sorts of things of that nature for obvious reasons, 92 years old today, an incredible amount of energy and still just sharp as a tack. Someone who's also as sharp as a tack is the one and only Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, talking about a wide variety of of subjects. Steve, I, I alluded to the fact that um, there was a major coronal mass ejection on the sun uh, last Monday on March 13th. What is a coronal mass ejection and, and what happened exactly? Well, interesting, Frank. This is a powerful one. It's called a halo CME. But here's the interesting story behind this. Normally, these ejections happen. Obviously, you look at the sun. If you're you know, sitting above the sun, you see the big ball. And it may, all this energy is coming off it all the time. But solar cycle 25 is really on the uptick. So as you mentioned, March 13th, we found on the far side of the sun, this halo CME. What is that? A really super powerful CME that if you look at the covered image of the sun, what the spacecraft does, you know, blocks out the light of the disk of the sun. You see this gigantic enveloping cloud racing out away from the sun. And remember, the diameter of the sun is 865,000 miles across. The sun in that image is a tiny little circle. And this thing is enveloping way out into space. It hit the planet Mercury, which was also on the other side of the sun. It travels at about 1,300 miles an hour. And it moves through in the direction. The Earth was actually hit by this, believe it or not, even though it's like if you had a shotgun and you fired it this direction and you're standing the other direction. In this case, because it's all done with protons and electrons, some of that stuff seeped out around the edges of the sun and actually induced into the upper atmosphere what we call these solar energetic particles and caused from that thing, there was a gigantic flare, an M-class, which is not as powerful as an X-class, so it's all from a sunspot group that's now on the back of the sun. So slowly that's going to start migrating around the front. And here we go again. Stay tuned because solar activity from cycle 25, Frank, it's not expected to reach its peak until maybe late 2024 or 2025. So we've got a long way to go. And the sun is a very unpredictable star. And uh, we've talked a lot about EMPs and what uh, naturally occurring or uh, or man-made EMPs and what that could do to things like electronics on the Earth. Um, Is there any sort of danger to electronics from a CME? Most definitely. Way more than what you'd have. Well, I shouldn't say way more. If you had an above ground in the atmosphere, you know, an intentional nuclear device causing EMP, gamma rays, you know, protons, radiation... You would have the similar thing with the sun. And remember, because the sun's 93 million miles away, the energy that comes off one of these solar flares, and this is no exaggeration, the average solar flare at the surface of the sun, the photosphere, is about 100 billion times more powerful than the most powerful nuclear bomb that we've ever detonated. So this material is streaming off the sun. And since we live, what, in the digital world, as I always talk about, everybody knows that, 
the, the propensity to be damaged or have that particular type of devices damaged by these, you know, increase of solar activity is on the uptick. So what do we have, Frank? We have this giant ring or satellite, uh, excuse me, a ring around the Earth of satellites, and all of them can be susceptible. I mean, some have so-called radiation dampers and protection, but nothing may be able to survive one of the onslaughts of a super powerful CME or solar flare. CMEs take longer to get to the Earth, about an average of about 15 hours for them. So we, just, we have a little time to know what's going to happen. But a solar flare occurs at the speed of light. And that's just amazing. How do you stop something right. like that? Because light speed is eight minutes away. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it boggles the mind to conceive of that kind of thing. 800-848-9222. Claude is uh, listening to us on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Claude. Claude, we got you. Good morning, Claude. Hey, this, this space junk out there. I mean, your space junk flies around all the time, right? Yes. And couldn't that hit us and do some damage? Well, yes. I mean, we've had the absolute, you know, I remember when I lived back in the New York area, we had the Skylab scare. Everybody around the world had it. And the right. last thing we did, Claude, was look out in the night sky in July when it was coming down in that particular year in 79. And we saw this thing wandering like it was wobbling in the sky. So right. space junk is a problem. And you're right. I mean, some of these satellites, they try to deorbit them in an area in the South Pacific called the spacecraft graveyard. But we're going to talk later, I think, Frank, about the, so the ISS, which comes down maybe in 2030. NASA's trying to develop a space tug so they can make sure they pull this big 300-foot big monster down. Because imagine if it all breaks apart. But, Claude, yeah, space junk is a thing that we have to watch out for. You know, speaking of that, um, last week, actually just a few days ago, in mm -hmm. California, uh, Northern California, a bunch of people thought that they were seeing UFOs, uh, and sure. it looked like that. There was videos, there was photos, it Absolutely. looked like UFOs. Um, and it turns out that it was just discarded space trash that yes. was causing this, what looked like raining fire in the California sky. What was that in California? I'm not sure which satellite it was or where it came from, but you're right. Space junk like that, it shouldn't be coming down who knows? I mean, of the manned spacecraft up there, there's just ISS that we know of and the Chinese Tiangong. But if you're going to release material like that, it's going to deorbit. And for people to have seen that, as you described so accurately, it must have been a hell of a lot of material right. coming down from space. But hopefully it all incinerates. It puts yeah. on a nice light show. Indeed. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank and uh, Steve. Uh, my question is, how close, uh, how far have we come along to solving Einstein's unified field theory? I'm a big fan of particle well, physics. Here we go again. It's, it's the same problem that we've had for so long. Einstein was never a big fan of in the time he was you know, doing these theories, general and special theory of relativity. But as I described before, this whole concept of taking this thing called the theory of everything what we're trying to do is quantify and how do we how do we bring in relativity and the baryonic world, which is this four percent of all electromagnetics, you know, the strong and weak nuclear force and gravity, and integrate it into quantum physics. And honestly, the answer to this question, Robert, I think we're still very far away. So that I don't think we have any quote unified theory that's actually going to be something that we're going to see. And, and I don't want to be depressing on this or negative, but I don't think in my lifetime, I'm sixty-seven. I don't think we're even going to get anywhere close to that for the next maybe 60, 70 years, if that. But don't you think, Robert, I'd love a surprise out there from some scientists. That would be a heck of a way to uh, 
rock the world with some new science and foundations of science for more Nobel Prizes. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates. You can check out the Dr. Sky Experience on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Check it out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. It's great observations on there, terrific interviews, and a bunch of other interesting uh, subjects that, that we're just scratching the surface with here today. Steve, since the last time that we spoke, uh, there was a lot of drama regarding the escalating tensions between the United States and Russia, and it had sure. to do with this U.S. drone that was uh, essentially downed by the Russians. What's the latest on this uh, downed drone, and do we know if this drone has fallen into Russian hands? Do we know the status of the drone debris at the moment? Well, we don't know exactly where it is. At least that's what the news sources tell us. Maybe the, maybe the, you know, our, our military knows more, but maybe the Russians do too. And apparently there's some sort of a search going on, and they may get there faster because we may not have the assets. Like they have probably many more ships in that part of the world than we do right now for recovery or anything. But just in case people are wondering what I'm talking about, two Russian Su-27 fighters, fighter jets, you know, fairly advanced aircraft. But the pilots on these did something really ridiculous. They did something very illegal. The drone, the MQ-9 uh, you know, Reaper, the Predator, was actually out in international water. People pretty much know that. So you see the video from the camera that swings back from the drone itself, and it shows the Su-27 doing a nasty, and that is coming right on top of it and dumping fuel. Well, that's illegal. That's In many cases, it would be considered, what, an act of war. So what happens is we see another video, and we don't know how this happened, some allege that the Su-27 actually hit the propeller, which I doubt. We don't know how this happened. But the point that I'm trying to bring up here is people may not realize this, but these particular drones have the capability of having their own defenses. And we see so much from the Iraq war, and we see so much in Afghanistan where the drones themselves like this, these MQ-9s, are armed with Hellfire missiles. So what I'm thinking is, and I'm not telling the government what to do, but common sense would say if you're out in international waters and you're being attacked, which is illegally, you have the ability to defend yourself. And I'm sure one of those Hellfire missiles would find a nice home right up the tailpipe of the afterburner on the Su-27. But we don't know where this is. But to learn so much more about this, I, I read so much, and maybe many people out there follow him. Tyler Rogaway at The Drive, his particular website is really jam-packed with information on all these things that are going on militarily with aviation, and uh, he's a pretty good source. So I follow him, and that's pretty much what I could tell you right now. One of the uh, planets that I think has intrigued many of us it has been Venus. Uh, we've never, uh, we, we've really just scratched the surface of what there is to know about Venus. But this week there was some news that uh, there was some serious volcanic activity on Venus. What is this volcanic activity and what could it tell us about life here on Earth? Well, this is strange because this is a planet, Frank, when we were in school, we all had Venus as the Earth's twin. Well, it sounds cool because it's about the same size. But if you look deeper at Venus, we've talked about it before, but first-time listeners, this is the information that I think is really interesting. The planet is encased in the sulfuric acid clouds, carbon dioxide. The surface temperature is 900 degrees Fahrenheit all the time. And if the surface of the planet, many people thought it was smooth. Well, it's not. But the images that were taken by the Magellan spacecraft in the 1990s, this is the accurate story here, they imaged certain areas on, Mar on Venus, excuse me, there's a gigantic volcano on the surface of Venus called Ma'at Mons, 
And the Ma'at is actually named for the Egyptian goddess of justice and truth. Go figure, I don't know how they named that mountain, but what they saw in those Magellan images is changes in puffs of smoke coming up out of the caldera or the top of that volcano. So up till now, I mean, this is like a late revelation, those images were taken a long time ago, and scientists now re-examined it. So now we're thinking that volcanic activity is probably something that does indeed, from these images, verification. But here's what's strange about Venus. The Earth has tectonic plates, you know, the shifting of the ground and the rock formations, the whole chain of fire that we see in the Pacific, you know, these shifting plates causing, what, magma coming up and earthquakes. But Venus doesn't have tectonic plates, so what's the source and, and way that volcanic activity or volcanism is taking place on the surface of Venus, a strange planet? It may one time have had life, not necessarily like humans, not necessarily like animals, mm. maybe microbial life. But here's the strangest thing of all. We're starting, looking for life on Mars. We're spending all this money. And some astronomers have said, look closer. And what do they mean? Venus, of all the planets, gets closest to the Earth. It gets within 25 million miles of the Earth when it gets closest. That's closer than Mars' 34 million. But what they're saying in the cloud tops, Frank, of Venus, there may be these particles called phosphenes, and phosphenes may be either the outproduced uh, source or you know, something to do with life or organic life. It may be that it's the waste material that organic life is pumping out into the atmosphere or maybe the nutrients that they eat, whatever these microbes are. So they may want to one day send these balloons. I know we've heard enough about balloons coming over here. But they may have balloons go, spacecraft-type balloons, that can actually survey and get into the atmosphere. And wouldn't that be strange if life or organic life was found on Venus's clouds before it ever was found on Mars? So um, what else do you think we can learn about Earth as Earth and what life might have been like here in observing this volcanic activity on Venus, if anything. Well, volcanism obviously is the biggest polluter in the entire world. I mean, we talk about climate change, and obviously people don't want to just pollute intentionally and keep it, you know, we, we try to sort our trash and do all the things to be good people. But the point of the matter is volcanic activity produces so much carbon dioxide. Just look at what happened here on the Earth last January 15th in the South Pacific, this submarine volcano called the Hunga Tonga submarine volcano exploded, and it sent so much ash. And if you see some pictures of the sunset, by the way, if you look out in the evening sky, hopefully we'll have, we've been getting nothing but rain here in the West. But if you have a clear night, wherever you're listening to this show, you may want to see right after sunset these beautiful colors in the sky, like purples and majestic pink colors. That's still aerosols from the volcanic activity. But what we can learn, Frank, very quickly, is that life here on the Earth may have been a multi-staged development, obviously. It didn't just happen like snap, boom, here's the bacteria. The main contention and the main theory, I should say here, in contention, is that this concept called panspermia, where objects like comets, meteors, transported DNA here to the Earth, and in those activities when carbon dioxide-rich environments, a lot of these bacteria thrived and followed up by generating oxygen. So we have a lot to learn from these planets. But Venus, don't you think it's very surprising that you would imagine a hostile world like that may yet have the answers to where life is in the solar yeah. system, even in a microbial way? Hey, speaking of, uh, of Venus, I read in Axios yesterday yes. that the future of a major NASA mission to explore Venus may be 
in jeopardy. Um, Mm -hmm. Apparently, this has to do with President Biden's budget request for NASA and what the implications may be for the Veritas mission to Venus. Uh, What exactly is happening uh, here, Steve? Break this down for us. Well, there's only a limited amount of money for these budgets that NASA has. And I don't know the exact number, but there was a time, I think recently, where the budget of NASA was only about $18 billion for their funding. So they have to shift money around all over the place so that they can actually, you know, keep these big programs going. Artemis is a big, uh, you know, it has to be fueled, and so many others. So they may be pulling money from the Veritas mission. There's also another mission to Venus called Da Vinci that's supposed to go to 2029. So we need to learn so much more about what's happening on the surface of Venus. But it's a very difficult place to do research because if you go to the surface – it's like you and I crawled down into the ocean, or I should say more appropriately, swam down about 3,000 feet under the ocean. The pressures, atmospheric pressures and temperatures there are just so difficult in which to do the ground-based analysis like we do and take for granted. And it's a hard job, too, on the surface of Mars with the rovers. And we alluded to this earlier, the International Space Station. Apparently, they are developing a plan to, uh, to do a tug to get it out of orbit. Um, why? Yes. Why, do they want, why do they need to map a deorbit tug to bring down the International Space Station in seven years? What's going wrong or what's going on that the, mm-hmm. that the International Space Station needs to be brought down? Well, it's so big. I mean, and the funding, I mean, it's more of a funding source we're talking about. But if you take a look at this device, I mean, this tug that they're looking to do, the tug itself would slowly pull down this particular spacecraft in a controlled deorbit, as opposed to having this thing where it just goes willy nilly, like you had the Mir space station, which wasn't really a totally controlled burn. So that's something that will help indeed to uh, bring down uh, the the you know the eventuality that the ISS has to come down because it can't stay up there forever. What happened with the space station Mir? Did it did it hurdle back down to Earth? It did. It was actually tried. It was tried to be placed down in that graveyard that we call it in the South Pacific. If you look off the coast of like Chile, there's an area in the South Pacific where if you take a look at a map, there's really like nothing there. It's like there's no land. Tahiti is way out there. There's like no place. So what they decided, this is an international community of space, you know, uh, companies like NASA and everybody else, like Roscosmos, that they would say, okay, we're going to designate this area as a space graveyard. And with Mir, what they tried to do was do this without having any tug. And what happened was it was kind of like, well, it's going to come down in that area, but some of these pieces are going to fly off and nothing hit the ground, at least that we know of. So basically it just disrupted in a large area safely over a large area of ocean. The, um, you know, why don't we take a quick break? We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. If you have questions, you're welcome to give us a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is the infinite side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Venus, if you 
The great Frankie Avalon singing about Venus. This is The Other Side of Midnight, but on a semi-monthly basis, we make this the infinite side of midnight as we have a, a chance to chat with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, about things that are above us. And uh, we're doing just that. Uh, Steve, let me get your opinion on the, uh, yes. the new space suits that NASA revealed this week. What do you think of them? How would you describe them? Well, I think they're great. They're more streamlined. If you look at the Apollo spacesuits, that we, of course, 12 humans went to the surface of the moon, we find out that these spacesuits are incredible because, let's put it this way, if you were to try to bend over on the surface of the moon, ask those astronauts that are still alive that went there, it was very difficult to twist around your torso to actually pick something up if you drop it. So these new spacesuits are very streamlined. And the first iteration of these spacesuits We've seen on the Crew Dragon uh, space missions, the uh, you know SpaceX. They're interesting. They look like uh, kind of designer clothing, but they're very functional. But the ones that are going to go to the, that are going to go to the surface of the moon, they showed the original ones as a black type of outfit, black material. But they're going to be white for the reflectivity, so that you can see each individual astronaut, men and women, on the surface of the moon and identify them. And something else that maybe people don't recognize on the Apollo missions, you saw. Both of these astronauts that walked, let's say, on the surface of the moon, the two men at each time they went to the surface there during Apollo, they both had identical spacesuits. But one on their helmet had a red stripe, so you could identify which one of the astronauts was which. Because imagine if you're trying to talk from Houston and you're trying to give orders or commands or just even listen to what they're saying, you want to identify. But these new spacesuits, Frank, I think are amazing. I would only uh, wonder. Imagine how much they cost. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. I mean, do we have any idea how much they cost? I do not. And, and I know the other spacesuits that we're talking about with the Apollo mission, they stated that in the 1970s dollars, they were probably worth about $2 million a piece if you were to actually try to buy them at your local you know, retail store, which is impossible. But I can only imagine. Maybe, who knows? Maybe the cost has gone down significantly. But I think it was a company called Hamilton Standard that actually developed so much of that technology. But wait to see. I mean, let's see. They look pretty exciting. They, they do indeed. All right, we'll try and squeeze in as many calls as we can here. Dave is in Lockport. Dave, what's your question for Steve Cates? Yeah, uh, Dr. Sky, I've got two questions. One, uh, doesn't it make more sense if you're going to spend the money to send a tug up to the uh, ISS? Uh, doesn't it make more sense to put it in a higher Earth orbit? And the other question is, why didn't we ever make a space station in the shape of a donut like uh, all the sci-fi I read when I was a kid? I'm, I'm 72, you know? Yes, sir. Well, Dave, thanks. They're great questions. Here's my answer to the first one. The tug itself, they want to bring this space station down, okay? They, they want to see it deorbit and burn up, obviously. But here, going to what you're talking about, why not put it up into a higher orbit? Well, there's probably no logic to that either, because eventually if that spacecraft was pushed higher, who knows, maybe in the future, it might still wander back down here toward the Earth and then deorbit at a later time. So what they're trying to do is do something that you know, I think is pretty, pretty smart on their part, but it's going to cost them a lot of money to do that. But the second question, I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite hear that part. Just, just give me that again. Oh, I, uh, I, I, I disconnected him. But I think it was, why don't they make the, spa the space station in the shape of a donut? Oh, okay. Well, that's a good question. Because the, the most prolific one, and we all remember it from the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's interesting. We haven't had the ability to build something that large in space right now. 
So what we're doing is we're building these horizontal longitudinal space stations because they're modules. It's easier to attach modules and ask any child when they build a Lego project. You know, they're snapping things together along a, pier, along a line. Eventually, you get into a larger shape. But the problematic thing with, with that is it's easier to attach modules, and it's a little more difficult to build one of those round circular donuts. But the benefit of the big circular donut is that you could create artificial gravity in there, as the one in the 2001 space movie showed. Well, you could actually have the ability to create an artificial environment of gravity. Maybe that's coming, but probably not anytime soon. Steve, there have been some what they what's been described as strange circular dunes on uh, on the surface of Mars. Uh, what do we know about these dunes that have been spotted on Mars? Well, the pictures are quite interesting. They show these large brown or black circular objects, and what happens is the winds on Mars are pretty powerful, and it's not a place you and I would probably want to be during what we call dust storm season. Winds can get up on Mars' surface, allegedly, over 100 to 200 miles per hour, maybe even more. But what we're seeing here is images taken by this interesting spacecraft that's in orbit. It's called the high-rise camera that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter took from, you know, high up in orbit. But the reason we're seeing these weird shapes is the melting of the polar cap, or the ice that we see, or the frost. Remember, it's not water ice, it's frozen carbon dioxide. And the winds on Mars do some strange things to that. And we all know from, what, childhood science that if you take a little block of dry ice and stick it in water, you got yourself a little fog machine. So things happen differently when that type of material made of frozen, you know, carbon dioxide, dry ice, is hit by winds. Mars has some very interesting winds, but I think some of these were pointed more to the south it all has to do with the wind structure on Mars. I um, I really enjoy when I have you on the on the air because you give folks an idea of what they can expect to see in the night sky and what they can yes. be on the lookout for. I understand that uh, between now and the next time we speak on March twenty eighth, that certain people may actually have the opportunity to see five planets in the sky. Is that accurate? Well, again, we've got to go with what the media says, but kind of give the little warning and the factual stuff. They're talking about five planets that are visible, but here's the real truth. Not to be depressing here, but accurate. The planet Jupiter, Mercury, Venus, Uranus, and Mars are all going to be in the evening sky. Here's the truth. Venus, if you look into the west at sunset, clear sky, it's hugging low into the horizon. It's easy to see with the naked eye. Mercury may be a little more difficult. It does get bright enough at times where you can see it with the naked eye or binoculars. Venus, wow, we spent a lot of time in, in this particular episode, and rightfully so, the goddess of love and beauty. You can't miss that. Naturally, It's beautiful. But here's the problem. Uranus, which is the way I like to pronounce it, it turns out to be a planet that's not visible to your naked eye at all. It was discovered back on March 13, 1781 by this William Herschel astronomer. You can't see that. And now Mars is fading. So simply, if you want to see these planets, these are the ones you'll see. You'll see Jupiter, Venus, and look straight overhead. Mars is still naked eye visibility, but it blends in with a lot of the stars. So there's the truth. Uh, sometimes we read in these Internet blogs and such and Internet you know, news sources. They talk about this, but they really don't give us the, the real stuff. I mean, how could you think you could see Uranus even in a telescope? It would be a little difficult at this time of the year, but technically they're all along a line in the sky. They're there. Mark is in Baltimore. Mark, what's your question for Dr. Sky? 
Thank you so much. Dr. Sky, uh, great to have you on. Um, Richard Hoagland, thank you. Good morning to you too. Richard Hoagland, or Walter Cronkite's former, the late Walter Cronkite's former space advisor for CBS News, wrote a book called The Monuments of Mars and recently mm-hmm. the High Rise Orbiter took some photographs of the Cydonia area. What's your take on that? Is there a face on Mars or not? Well, there is something geologically that looks like a face. Now, I'm not qualified to say this. I know Richard. I think I respect his work. But the thing is, if you look at the certain angles when the sun rises on that particular region of Mars and other areas, you bet it has the, you know, it has the facsimile of a face in itself. Whether or not it's an artifact of previous civilizations, that's beyond my level of knowledge. But here's the thing. Wouldn't it be great? Mark, if we had a spacecraft one day that will land right there, and then we'll be able to see, just like I always say, for anybody that doubts that we ever landed on the moon, let's take one of these tiny little satellites, you know, some of the high-tech companies could do it with no, I don't know why they don't do it, land with one of these 4 and 8K cameras or a little rover, and I want to see the lunar module, that's the descent module that's still there, the American flag that might have fallen over. But in this particular case, I have no idea. I would... I would hope and be open-minded that maybe something was living or civilization did live there. But right now, it's probably just an interesting geologic form that looks like the shape of a face. Let me squeeze in one last question here. Robert's in Philadelphia. Hello, Robert. Great to talk to you, Mr. Case and uh, and Steve. Um, I watch how the universe works a lot, and listening to you after last night is really cool. But I had a question they're talking about the Intrepid rover on Mars, and it had a power supply that was supposed to die after eight to nine months, I believe, and 12 yeah. years later, it's still running. And I'm wondering if you thought it might have anything to do with what Tesla was talking about when it comes to drawing electricity from the atmosphere. And I'll hang up. Thank you. I don't know, Robert, but you bring up a very interesting situation there. If something is running out of power, my only guess would be maybe it came alive again if the dust I know this sounds like a crazy answer, but it's pretty accurate. The dust that goes on the solar panels on the surface of Mars is a major problem. So maybe something that happened there with the dust, maybe the winds blew it and it came back to reactivate. But I don't know. I would wish that somehow we could prove those theories that Tesla had, that actually pulling electricity out of the atmosphere is something that we can do. That's, I think, is something I think both of us, uh, Frank, we should call up uh, Elon Musk and maybe ask him his opinion. Yeah, <laughs> I'll put that at the first, uh, the top of the list of questions that I have for him. Hey, uh, speaking but, yeah. of Mars, I understand they discovered a modern glacier, or at least there's signs of a modern glacier on Mars. What could you tell us about this very quickly? Well, here we go again in accuracy and reporting, and not to knock these people that do these reports, but here it is. They're seeing something toward the equatorial region of Mars. This is not something where they saw up in the, you know, frozen carbon dioxide uh, snow area or snow cap. This is something along the equatorial region. More than likely, it's a salt formation, but I would find it very unusual if that was a true glacier with temperatures that are moderate at the equator, not the extremes that are at the poles of Mars. Steve Cates, uh, check him out on the Dr. Sky Experience. Go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search the Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app. Uh, Steve, it's always a pleasure. The hour always flies by. I look forward to talking with you again in two weeks. Thank you. Have a good morning, and thank you, everyone. All right. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but always keep your feet on the ground.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. The most polarizing words in the English language. What comes to mind? Well, I'm guessing there are some ethnic slurs among them. I'm guessing maybe there's even some political words among them. Uh, there's probably a lot of words that evoke strong emotions. One word that I don't know that I was quite cognizant of, the the polarizing effect of is a word that has been around for a long time. That word used to be something that you just say to be polite to women. That word is ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Sure enough, there is the big article on CNN.com this week about the fervor that being called ma'am calls, uh, causes for some women. The reporter that wrote this is Janelle Davis, and she said, and so was I, she said she was completely unaware how much women were outraged by this word until it started being directed at her when she hit her mid-20s. This, she said um, that, uh, like... The first time you aren't carted at the bar. I remember being called ma'am by a waiter and realizing, yes, he is talking to me. As someone from Seattle, this term sounded foreign and out of place. It was like society had decided without my permission that my youth was behind me. It's an identity shift when you realize people look at you and no longer see a young person. I'm no longer that innocent kid who plays soccer, enjoys summers off, and is told the world is your oyster. Now I work the daily grind, get back pain, and look forward to a night in, a night in watching documentaries. Well, I, I, maybe I can't relate because I did that sort of thing when I was a young person as well. Uh, and sure enough, we found this video on the YouTube as well. It's from a YouTube channel called Wifey, I believe. It's very popular. This is from about five years ago, but uh, this is Amanda Amanda Montel uh, talking about uh, how she hates the word ma'am. I hate the word ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. You have to wait your turn, ma'am. Every time a stranger calls me ma'am, I think, am I old? I hate absolutely everything about this word, from the nasally sound of it, ma'am, 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 to its matronly battle-axe connotations. Why, oh why, you have to wonder, does this god-awful word exist? I'm curious 
what your opinion is. And I, I'm especially interested in hearing from the ladies in our audience. And we got the numbers this week, and uh, we're doing great, thankfully. But we're doing especially well with women. And I'd love to hear from some of those women, whatever age you happen to be, does being called ma'am bother you? Does it make you feel old? I'm trying to think, do I call people ma'am? I don't think I do. And uh, I'm trying to think why. You know what it is? It's not even a question of not wanting to make people feel old, although I'm sure that's part of it because um, I I guess ma'am is something that you call an adult rather than a young young woman or a girl, right? You're not going to call a girl ma'am generally. But you know what it is? It's a little formal for me. Uh, for the way that I speak to even strangers, I, I try to make people feel very at home and try to act as there's as if there's some uh, some I don't know some informality between us and that we have a more comfortable relationship than maybe we do. That maybe is one of the things that uh, gets me in trouble socially from time to time. But does being called ma'am bother you? Why or why not? Eight hundred eight four eight. 9222. That's 800-848-9222. There's a doorman, Gary Peterson, in New York City, who says, I address people as sir. That's respectful, but not ma'am. It sounds old, and that's coming from me, who's about to turn 60. Cassia Waldridge, who works in the food and beverage industry, said she remembers a woman in Southern California who was openly offended and angry and angrily corrected the employee, ma'am is for my mother, not me. You know what? I don't understand that. I don't understand why you would ever get angry at someone when they're trying to be respectful and and polite. I mean, if someone were to call you, hey, uh, hey there, old fart, or hey there, Alta Caca, you know, you, 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 those are, hey there, geezer. Those are ways of being disrespectful. Those are ways of being insulting. Those are ways of um, deliberately using someone's age against them. But ma'am, I think if people use that term, it's, I don't know, it's, they're at least trying to make an effort to be polite and respectful. Christina Becerra on Twitter joked, my waitress, who is visibly younger than me, called me ma'am. Excuse me, did you just say Botox or ma'am? They both sound the same. Uh, It's kind of funny. And there's no definitive age, apparently, when a miss becomes a ma'am, but women say they take note when they start to hear the shift. Ma'am is generally considered to be a polite term to address a woman, but depending on the region or the context, a lot of times, according to the CNN article, I'm going to post it if you want to read it, uh, at facebook.com slash Morano fan. You could read the whole thing. Facebook.com slash M O R A N O fan. They're saying, depending on the context and depending on the region, it might not come across as polite at all. It might come across as the exact opposite. It comes from the French word for milady, madame, which in English turned into madam, and then ma'am by the 1600s. The pronunciation change happened at a time when American English was trying to differentiate itself from British English, apparently. See? Does this bother you? Do you mind being called ma'am? And if you're a fella, do you call people ma'am? And do you call everybody ma'am? 
If not, what's the barometer for you? I'm wondering if I should do more of it or less of it than I do. I don't think I call anyone ma'am. Um, I'm trying to think, do I? I don't know that I do. I don't really think about what I call people. I just call them. 800-848-9222. Loretta in Brooklyn. Uh, Loretta, do you mind being called ma'am? <laughs> um, not a bit. I'll be 78 in a few weeks if I make it. And um, ma'am is supposed to be short for madam. Right. And madam to me sounds formal. Maybe, maybe I'm because I'm not used to hearing that. I love when I get mommy and mama, because that is a term of endearment. And Even from people that are not your children. Sure. So you uh, have you have people that you're not related to calling you mommy or mama. It's mainly uh, a Puerto Rican thing, but ah. you get you get it from guys working in a store or behind the deli. Me personally, I call people dear uh, people when you don't know their names because dear goes both ways. Yeah, I like being called dear. Sometimes people call me dear or honey. I like that. I like that at all. I don't mind that one bit. I think that's a good thing to call people. But these days, you don't know what people are going to take the wrong way. If I call a woman dear... Um, you know, you don't know if they're going to think that that's uh, an unwanted uh, flirtatious advance or something. No, I think if you get stuck on a word, you're in trouble. You're nitpicking. Nit, nit, what is it? Nitpicking. Right, right. So ma'am is A-OK in your book? Uh, you can call me anything you want. Just don't call me late for dinner. I love it. I love it. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> Marianne in Queens. Does ma'am bother you? It don't. It won't bother me. But let me tell you what it means in Spanish. It means old. Okay. It means an old woman. So I never call no woman, even if it's young or old, man, because that's what it means. It's an insult. They don't want to be called old. All right. Okay. So, um, so you think there is something uh, to that goes with ma'am that uh, goes hand in hand with age? Exactly. It does. No. Thank it's, you. Know so. It's interesting, madame or madame in French is traditionally used to refer to a married woman, and unmarried women were called mademoiselle, meaning young lady, the equivalent to miss. The French government banned the word. I had no idea. The French, they take their word seriously in, in France. The French government banned the word mademoiselles from official usage about 11 years ago. The decision was celebrated by feminists, noting that men of all ages have only one label, monsieur. So women should have just one neutral label. But the English words, miss and ma'am, have hung around. And today, when some women hear ma'am, instead of envisioning an elegant French lady, they picture, to use the Don Lemon term, they picture a woman past her, her prime. I'm curious, does ma'am bother you? 800-848-9222. There was an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show titled, Today I Am a Ma'am. Moore's character, Mary Richards, is shocked and bewildered when a young man at her office calls her ma'am. And apparently this has bothered people for a long time. Curious if this bothers you. 800-848-9222. Brian is in Long Island City. Hello, Brian. Hey, Frank. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. Thanks. There you go. Hey, um, so 
I moved down. I'll just tell you a quick story, and then I'll let you go. Moved down to Texas when I was a teenager. Um, originally from Long Beach, New York. And um, the only thing we were allowed to, to uh, call our teachers and our um, our elders was sir and ma'am. And if you didn't, uh, I wouldn't say you'd get in trouble, but it was very – my basic point of the story is I think it's very regional, and I think it's very uh, – a part of a culture in the South that is uh, more accepted, if that makes sense. Uh, no, I think I think that does make sense. So what do you do today? When you meet a woman today, what do you do? Uh, so, well, I moved back to uh, the great state of New York five years ago, and I still say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Oh, you do? And, and you don't get complaints I, of people I, trying I, to correct I, you? No, no. Well, everybody will say, you know, hey, call me by my first name, this and that. But, you know, I lived down there for 30 years, and uh, it just was ingrained in me, you know. And um, I don't think people take offense to it. Okay. Well, th- that's, that's yeah. my deal. I just wanted to share that. I, I think it's very much of a, a northeastern deal versus a, uh, a southern deal. I think it's very accepted in the south. And it's appreciated in the South. Uh, yeah, I think I would tend to agree with you, uh, Brian, based on the research that I'm doing here. 800-848-9222. Christina is on Long Island. Hello, Christina. Hi. Uh, I don't find it offensive at all. I'm 31 years old, and I call people ma'am every day. I work with the public. And what I want to know is what, it, what am I supposed to call a woman? How am I supposed to address her if I can't say ma'am? Um, Are there any other alternatives? Well, I guess miss. Uh, That's what I don't know. So do people ever call you, ma'am, Christina? All the time. And it doesn't bother you? You It doesn't make you feel old? Well, uh, in my my 20s, when I started to notice the shift, subconsciously I'm like, oh, am am I starting to look old? But it didn't bother me. It's more like a rite of passage. Like, okay, I'm an adult. This comes with being an adult. I'm not a kid anymore. I, I actually liked it. I accepted it. But I don't see how it's uh, it could be offensive. I don't understand the offense behind it. I, I'm with you, Christina. I, I really don't either. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, Gina is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gina. Hi, Frank. Frank, when I hear ma'am, I crack up because it reminds me of Goma Pyle. Yeah, I remember Goma Pyle. That's right. That was yeah. very much in keeping with his sensibilities. But I'll tell you, the first time somebody called me senora, I realized I wasn't a senorina anymore. I heard that in a pizzeria. <laughs> that bothered me a little bit, you know. But what I hate the most is when somebody calls me sweetie. That that bothers me. Oh, you don't like sweetie? No, I don't. I think it's condescending. Yeah, I, I tend to. What about dear? I like that, and I use that. Yeah, I, I like mean dear it too. When I say it. I, yeah. I don't just call anybody dear. I, if if somebody's treating me well in a store or is giving me information, I call them dear. You know, I thank them. You know, I, and I think it's genuine when I say it. Yeah, okay. well, I like that, Gina. I'm going to start incorporating dear more. I think. All right, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Helena is in Westchester. Hello, dear. <laughs> Hi, Frank. Yeah. I think when somebody calls you ma'am, I think it's from where they, uh, the state they came from, and they're used to using that as a courtesy and not just, it's not. What about they use Ms. 
Miz. Do you like Miz or dislike Miz? Hate it. Hate it. Hate why? It. Tell me why. Well, I don't know. It's just not necessary. And I've got to tell you something important right sure. now. I spoke to you one night when I was feeling like I wanted to die. And you gave me a lot of time to speak, and you cheered me up, gave me information that was very important, because I swear, my life was just, I felt like it should end. And I thank you so much for that. And that, all right, I I don't want to talk about that anymore but yeah ma'am i do not find it offensive at all but sweetheart i hate it sweetheart you don't like i see i i like sweetheart too but i don't really call people sweetheart well helena uh i appreciate that and uh we're always here for you and i'm glad uh i'm glad we were able to bring you uh, a little bit of uh, of relief. And uh, remember, things can always be better, but they can also always be worse. So keep that in mind. I'm glad you're doing doing okay now, all right? Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. I enjoy your show so much. Thank you. I appreciate that, Helena. Thank you very much. She's a nice lady there. Hate to hear that she was going through a, uh, a tough time. Um, by the way, you know, I do recommend, it's not, it's not, free, but I don't think it's super expensive. There is an online therapy called betterhelp.com and you could do, you could basically get meetings with a therapist, get whole therapy sessions, um, either by phone, by live chat or by video, betterhelp.com. And, uh, it's helped a lot of people that I know and including family members of mine, uh, they've really been helped by uh, BetterHelp.com. So if you're ever feeling super lonely or that you just might need somebody to talk to, and they're not an advertiser, uh, they're they're 100% not an advertiser, uh, maybe you think about re- re- checking that website out, BetterHelp.com. All right. Um, Paul is in Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hello, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Morning. Uh, I, this, this, good morning, brother. Good morning. I don't mind me. I'm on my way to work. I just woke up. Just, I, this, this whole woke world's gone nuts. What, what are you supposed to be like? Jerry Lewis to say, hey, lady. I mean, what, there's nothing wrong with ma'am. I say ma'am. I say dear. I don't problem. Unless you say it in a sarcastic manner, then I could understand somebody getting annoyed with it. Well, I don't see anything wrong with that either. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, what are you supposed to say to be respectful? Are you supposed to say your excellency? I mean, uh, you know, you're trying to be polite. <laughs> you're trying to be nice. Uh, now, the one area where ma'am is still absolutely 100% embraced is the Deep South. They call everybody ma'am down there. But even the CNN article asks, if not ma'am, then what? So, uh, and I don't know. Milady, I mean, that's kind of a Victorian term, but blogger Kristen Hansen Brakeman suggests we bring that back. Milady. Okay. Uh, miss, it's, miss to me sounds too minimizing of the person that you talk to. Uh, I don't think ma'am, is, I don't think ma'am is bad, but clearly a lot of women do. 
800-848-9222. Tony is in Florida. Hello there, Tony. Good morning. morning. I, you know, when I was young, uh, people would call me miss or dear or honey, and that was okay because everybody was older than me. But then now that I'm in my 60s and even before, ma'am is what you're supposed to call somebody as a sign of respect. I hate when somebody the age of my granddaughter calls me sweetie, honey, and dear. I just loathe it. It's like fingernails on, on a chalkboard. And um, the woman that didn't like Ms., when I was a police officer and I'd approach a woman and I had no idea if she was married or not, I, Ms. came in perfect. You know, it was it covered right. all the bases. Right. Uh, Ms. Not not Miss. Ms. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, so you don't mind, ma'am, uh, being being called it at any age? Well, I, I see that older women should be called ma'am. And, and when I was younger, if you called me dear or honey, that was fine when I was in my 20s. But once I hit my 30s. It would seem silly for somebody to call me Miss, what, you know, especially what, after I've been married so many years. So, what do you think the appropriate age cutoff is for when the terminology should become "ma'am"? Ballpark thirty. 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 Over yeah. the age of thirty, someone's a ma'am. Right. Okay. In I'll, my opinion, I like that. I, I like that, Tony. Thank you. Uh, Keith is in Baltimore. Hello, Keith. Yes. Um, I live in Baltimore, but I'm originally from Tennessee. And I was when I was born. I was born. I'm. I just turned sixty. I was, you know, raised in the in the 70s and 80s mostly. And but, ma'am, to us, to me, and it's just like yes, sir. It it, it was a taught to me as a, ma- a matter of respect, and it. Uh, I, I never viewed it as a uh, being a disrespectful. Well, term. and and neither did I. And I think the people that use it, they don't mean it to be disrespectful. But I, I think a woman may. And what I'm gaining from all this, the research that I've done, the CNN article, that video that I watched, is that some women may view themselves as young, and then all of a sudden they get called ma'am, and that's sort of a wake up call to them that they're actually old. And that's why they find it a little offensive, apparently. But uh, I, I definitely don't think the people that are using the term mean anything by it. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Bobby is in Verona. Hello, Bobby. Hey, what's up, buddy? Um, I was saying then that I call women a uh, hun. I call them hun a lot. And it used to pee off my, my girlfriend at the time because that's kind of what I what I would call her at home, you know. But... If I didn't know the woman's name or if just trying to be respectful, whatever, um, I didn't really know too many ma'ams because we were kind of in that age bracket where, you know what I mean? The ma'am was my, my buddy's parents, you know, but, uh, but, but would you call, would call them, them ma'am? Hunt. Your buddy's parents, would you call them ma'am? Yeah. You if would. They, unless they, unless they, at one point they, you know, they told me, you know, you call me Joe or you call me right. uh, Ann or whatever, but, uh, yeah, well, I hope you're not calling yeah. Joe ma'am. Well, my mother's name was Joe. Oh, I see. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm just I'm just picking names at random. But but uh, yeah, I mean, I would call a woman hun if I didn't know their name. And you know, I don't. I mean, you were looking for an alternative to the doll, ma'am. And you know, um, I don't know, just a respectful way. I would just address somebody if I didn't know their name, and that you know, um, instead of calling them ma'am. I like hun. I like hun, but I think that's one of those words that's sort of fallen out of out of fashion these days. I, I think it's very difficult um, 
unless you're older, maybe then you can get away with it. But I think it's very difficult to call a woman you just met hun without her being guaranteed not to take offense. I think there's too many of them that would take offense. Pamela's in New Jersey. What do you think, Pamela? I like it in the South when they call me Miss Pam. But then again, you have to know the lady's first name. But I, I, I like it. It's it's traditional. It's uh, it's kind of respe- it's respectful, but yet it's, um, you know, like uh, friendly. <laughs> yeah. So it meaning Miss Pam. But if somebody in the Northeast outside of the South were to call you that, would you would you think that was a little unusual? I would think maybe they had a background in the South, but I would like it. Okay, it's well, better so than, it's better than ma'am. It's better than ma'am. Ma'am, I, and, and, you know, I, I like it as a form of respect, but it's true. Um, it's part of, like, um, women know that there is a difference between your treatment when you're younger and when you're older. It's, it's definitive, and you know it. And the first time you're called ma'am, it's like, oh, God, I crossed that line. <laughs> so should men avoid saying ma'am? No, I don't think so, because there really isn't anything to replace it. It's right. better than I, I don't like being called sweetie or hun. And, you know, it's been done before. But I just figure it's old school. Some Sometimes right. old school. Right. That's what I was just saying. That. I feel like an older fella can get away with it, but not a younger guy necessarily. Right, right, right. But but when when. Uh, and then uh, the, the Spanish background, they'll call you mommy. And, you know, I live in a, a, a neighborhood, you know, like most of us do. And I get called that a lot. And when the first time it happened, it was like, huh? And it's like, oh, okay, I get it. And it's, you know, it's respectful. At first it was like a little shocking. Um, but, a- again, like you said, like, hun is old school, and that's reserved for spouses, hun. You know, I, right. I, I don't, I, I don't I, like that. Yeah, like, I, I call my wife sweetie. I, I, don't, I wouldn't call a, a woman I just met sweetie. Uh, you know, I, it's a little too, a little too familiar, I, I think. Thank you, Pamela. Last one, and then I'm very eager uh, to talk about the Leo Frank case with uh, Judge Jane Manning. Maybe I'll get her take on the ma'am debate as well. AJ in Texas, give me your take on this. Hey, Frank. Uh, transplant from New Jersey, and that, that guy Brian earlier hit it right on the head, man. I mean, ma'am out here, I, I just, it's the most basic, common thing. I mean, it, it's just, that's all people say. And not only that, but women say it to other women. They call each other man. Right, right. And you could eat, yeah, and you could even have like if you were in a restaurant and I don't know the, you know the hostess was talking to a young girl, maybe twelve years old. She'll call her ma'am. I mean, it's just it, that's how ingrained it is. So yeah, that it's it's definitely a cultural kind of thing. And you know, back in the Northeast, yeah, it's just not really how we talk, but out here, it, it's. All they say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. I mean, that's it. Yeah, thank you, AJ. On that note, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Judge Jane Manning, uh, a terrific writer who's written a thesis on the Leo Frank case. If you're not interested, if you're not familiar with the Leo Frank case, I should say, this is the case that the musical Parade 
is based on, which has caused so much controversy with the Nazis protesting outside and everything. And I have to say, this case is an absolutely fascinating case. I haven't been able to stop reading about it since I first learned about it. We'll get into it in a moment with uh, Judge Manning. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck be a lady tonight. A lot of you may remember when the musical Parade, which is now showing here in New York, when it first started showing, there were all sorts of protests by Nazis. And then there were counter-demonstrators protesting against the neo-Nazis. And it uh, made me curious about what this play was about. Why are people out there protesting it? Well, it turns out this play is a dramatization of the 1913 trial and imprisonment and then the subsequent lynching of a Jewish New Yorker named Leo Frank in Georgia. And someone who has written extensively about the case, she's written a thesis which is awaiting publishing, is a state court judge in Cobb County, Georgia, Judge Jane Manning. And uh, based on what I've read of her thesis, I think there are fewer people that could be better informed on ca- on this case, especially the legal merits of it, than she is. Uh, judge, thanks for uh, joining me on the radio. Appreciate you staying up late. Thank you, Frank. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So uh, let's pretend our audience has no idea who Leo Frank uh, was and they have no idea what this case was about. Give us the uh, the thumbnail sketch, the Reader's Digest version of what the Leo Frank case was. Leo Frank was a northerner, a Jew, who um, came to Atlanta to run his uncle's pencil factory. In 1913, on uh, Confederate Memorial Day, one of his employees, Mary Fagan, a 13-year-old girl, came to get her pay on a Saturday. He was the last person known to have seen Mary Fagan. The next day, her body was found in the basement of the pencil factory. Um, It's disputed whether or not she was sexually uh, molested or not. Um, Various people were arrested. Uh, the attention turned to Leo Frank, and this became the O.J. Simpson case of the day. He eventually was convicted, um, interestingly enough, solely on the uh, statement of a black employee. 
Jim Coney, who, which is totally um, probably the first person in Georgia ever, to, a white person, to be convicted on the testimony of a black person. Uh, he had numerous appeals, and uh, eventually he was lynched uh, two years later by a mob from Marietta, Georgia, where I live. And the lynching took place right down the street from my house. Wow. So um, he was lynched and killed post-conviction? Yes. He had. Um, he was sentenced to death. But Governor uh, Slayton, uh, probably one of the last acts that he did as governor, commuted him to um, a life sentence. And he had 13 appeals while he was alive. It had gone all the way up to the uh, United States Supreme Court. And um, he was... Uh, in the prison in Milledgeville, Georgia, over 100 miles from here. And one night, uh, 35 of uh, Marietta's finest citizens, including uh, the DA, a judge, state representatives, uh, went down in the middle of the night, got him out of the prison, and lynched him up here in Marietta, Georgia. Wow. Wow. Now, why at the time uh, did – now, was the victim – the victim in this case, was she black? No, she was white. Why did the case get so much attention back in 1913? I mean, you mentioned the O.J. Simpson case. A lot of folks say that was the trial of the century. Why was uh, why was this case so high profile? Well, it started off with the identity of the victim herself. She was, uh, I think she started working outside the family home when she was 10 years old. You have to remember that this was a time of great upheaval in the southern community, and people had gone from the agrarian communities to the industrial communities. And uh, child labor was very common, and especially uh, the Georgia uh, Chamber of Commerce advertised, bring your factory to Georgia. We have lots of children that you can employ. So the family um, was uprooted and especially uh southern man felt emasculated that his uh the the girls and the women um had to work and then they went off into a place where uh their parents didn't have any control over them and what might happen to them if they went to work in a, in a factory were they going to be preyed upon sexually would they uh flirt with boys and have boyfriends um so it was a loss of control of the family. Her, when Mary Fagan, and Mary Fagan was a no one, but 5,000 people filed past her, her coffin. And it, it just really touched a nerve with uh, the Southern society at the time. What's happening to our girls when they get out of our sight? What was it? You mentioned the uh, testimony of the one black witness, and one doesn't necessarily think of uh, Southern juries in 1913 as being the most enlightened when it came to racial issues. What were what was it that led to his conviction and led the jury to take the word of that one witness to convict him and at least initially send him to to the death penalty? Well, um, there was uh, – Leo Frank was an outsider, 
uh, and I think that that worked against him. He was a, a northerner. He was a Jew. He was wealthy. That's another thing that goes back to what happened to Mary Fagan is is um, the exploitation and 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 of, of a wealthy person taking advantage of of this poor girl. But uh, Jim Coney, who most people now believe was the murderer, he was benefited by the prejudices against black people. Um, And he used that to uh, weave a tale. Um, For example, uh, he gave five different statements to police and the police were, you know, would he give one statement? They were like, well, that doesn't really match up with what, what we think happened. So finally he gave uh, five, five different statements. There was a feeling back then that a black person would naturally lie the first time. And it was only the last story that you got was really the truth. And um, and and another thing that happened with him is that uh, he had a lawyer, William Smith, who was a white man, who uh, uh, represented uh, black people. And William Smith worked with him so much on his testimony that Jim Coney was really able to uh, weave this unbelievable tale about Leo Frank and sexual perversion. And and Jim Coney withstood three days of cross-examination by one of the best lawyers in Atlanta at the time. And that led to his um, credibility as well. Um, so, and you have the mob mentality uh, going on w- at the trial that probably the um, it would have been difficult for the uh, jurors to, to not find him guilty with the um, with the, the mob outside uh, basically screaming for his conviction. Uh, we're talking with uh, Judge Jane Manning. She's uh, written a thesis on the Leo Frank uh, case. So in terms of – you mentioned the mob screaming for his conviction. They got his conviction. And then uh, was the reason that they broke into the jail and lynched him was because the death sentence had been commuted? They felt that he should have the death sentence? What was the sort of the mentality of the mob at the time? Well, that was two years later, of course. Um there's a great book. You said that you were interested in it. Uh, there's a fabulous book. It's called And the Dead Shall Rise, and it's written by Steve Oney, O-N-E-Y. And he goes into what happened after the, the trial, and, um, and it goes into the motivation of the local citizens that lynched uh, Leo Frank. And um, a lot of them felt that they were the ones doing justice, that, that, that Leo Frank had escaped justice. And they were the ones carrying out the sentence that the jury imposed. The um, and as far as because I know race and class does play a pretty big role in this whole uh, situation. Do we have any idea of the race of the angry mob that lynched Leo Frank? Was it a multiracial mob? Was it all white people? Oh no, it was it was all white. It all was white. it was these city fathers of Marietta, and there were over thirty of them. Including the DA, uh, and and uh, so that's that's who that's who lynched him. That's incredible. Uh, I um, now have you have you seen the show Parade? 
No, no, but I, I feel like I must. Yeah, I, I, uh, I am certainly eager to, uh, to see it as well. Here's a little bit of the uh, neo-Nazis uh, protesting outside of the show. Maybe. The truth about the ADL, you want to learn about the truth about that you're going to see tonight? You're paying 300 bucks to go f***ing worship a pedophile. You might as well know what you're talking about. Romanticizing pedophiles. Wow. I think you're it's clear that there are some, and it seems like some of the hate groups that were out there protesting, their beef was more with the fact that Leo Frank was Jewish, and there's a show that's uh, that portrays him in a sympathetic manner. But it, there seems to be at least some people who believe that Leo Frank was guilty of this murder. I know that you said that uh, Jim Coney is uh, the the person most people believe is the murderer. Is there a realistic chance that Leo Frank actually could have convicted, committed this murder? I will say that it couldn't have happened the way that Jim Coney said it would. Jim, Jim Conley, I'm calling him Coney and it's Conley, excuse me. Um, he said that uh, Leo Frank had had all these um, trysts at work and uh, he and and Jim Conley would uh, be a uh, a lookout for him. And that um, and, and Leo Frank came out and said, uh, watch for me while I'm having this girl in my office and then he 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 kills her and he says uh let's let's get rid of the body um uh, that's one thing that governor slayton did and and he's portrayed in the in the play as far as i can tell he's probably the only one who's um uh you know is is has any um redeeming characters characteristics out of the a lot of the players um there's no way that it could have happened the way that um Jim Conley said that it did with moving the body and the elevator and all these things in the, in the pencil factory. So there's no way that it could have happened the way that Jim Conley said it did. You're a judge, obviously. How would this trial be different if it were held in Georgia today in 2023 rather than 1913? Well, one of the most interesting things is if you want to tie it to today, it's really akin to the Alex Murdoch case um, with the use of character evidence. And as you know, in the, in the Alex Murdoch case, uh, they went into great detail about his financial crimes. And, and, and that is in the law that's called other acts. And uh, this trial had over 200 character witnesses, both for Leo Frank and against Leo Frank and for and against all these all these other witnesses that that testified, two hundred character witnesses, and that would be uh, severely uh, prohibited today. Which comes back to the pedophile thing. Leo Frank was never uh, charged with Mary's rape or molestation. Uh, this they did do um, autopsies back then. They they couldn't find spermatosa. They did sort of their own rape investigation, and they never uh, could come to a consensus as to whether or not uh, Mary had been raped. Uh, so as a result, in Georgia, because that was not charged, they couldn't get into all the perversion um, uh, accusations against Leo Frank. So uh, it, it, just like the Alex Murdoch case, they had they had to have that separate determination by the judge to bring in all his financial crimes. Hmm. Uh, and so with this, without a rape, 
uh, Leo Frank's sexual activities, whether what people testified to were true or false, I I don't know, but uh, those would not come in. So, um, so the character evidence would not come in, and that was over 200 witnesses. Uh, obviously, in the coverage of the parade, uh, the the parade, the musical, it's easy to see how this uh, this story has centered around anti-Semitism. And, and Leo Frank, as you write in your thesis, his grave is actually in Brooklyn, and it's considered uh, a shrine. Uh, it, a lot of, it's obvious that Leo Frank's lawyers thought that anti-Semitism was to blame for his arrest and eventually his conviction. What role did anti-Semitism play in his conviction, as far as you can tell? Well, you have to realize about the Jewish history in the South. Um, it's, and I guess I take a little umbrage with it being a Southerner, but uh, the the nation's um, oldest synagogue is in Savannah. The history of Jews in the South goes way, way back, and uh, Jews were um, considered uh, pillars of the community. Um, so. There's a there's a school of thought that um, his his Jewishness was not so much against him as was his other ways of being an outsider, the New Yorker, the rich person, the exploiter, uh, and and um, and that uh, that may have had a bigger impact on people being against him than um, the, than the Jewishness. Um, and also, it was his attorneys who, who, as you say, felt that his Jewishness worked against him. But um, it was really when um, the—we haven't even talked about the press and how rabid the press was and how these newspapers used this. But for the, the pro-Frank uh, people and the anti-Frank people, that it wasn't until uh, the, the, the northern Jews got involved in it that the Southerners felt that they were outsiders coming in and, and trying to undo justice. So it is considered the most egregious example of anti-Semitism in the United States. And there were shouts of hang the Jew outside the courtroom and things like that. But I think it plays more to just Frank being an outsider than necessarily uh, being, being Jewish with the history of uh, Jewishness in, in the South. And uh, in terms of the 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 case itself, what sparked your interest in it? Obviously, I know that you're a judge in Georgia, and this is a very famous trial that took place in Georgia. Was there something beyond that that called you to uh, devote so much scholarship to this? Well, it, um, I've I've heard uh, there, there's a local attorney who does continuing legal education uh, with the Leo Frank uh, case. Um, that sparked it. The, the Oni book, which is it's it's excellent, but it's 700 pages. I read that years ago, and um, it was just when in, in, in pursuit of my my thesis, uh, my master's in judicial studies, that, that this came about. And plus, it's so local. Like I said, he was lynched right down the street from me. There's a right. there's a historical plaque there. Only only in Georgia can you have a historical plaque like this. Uh, in front of a Waffle House. <laughs> uh, lastly, Judge, w- w- unrelated to this, we did a, a segment on the show yesterday exploring whether judges who retire honorably 
should still be called judge after they leave the bench. You'll be a retired judge one day. Uh, what do you think about this? Should people still keep calling you judge after you leave the bench? It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> it does not matter. One one thing to me, I've, I've been a judge for six years, and still sometimes when people call me judge, I'm like, are they talking to me? <laughs> uh, so, But it's... Um, uh, I'll tell you, I told my mother after I got elected, I said, um, after I got divorced, somebody told me it, it it rearranges every fiber in your being when you go through a divorce. And it's sort of the same with being a judge. It is it is that um, it's it's pretty earth shaking and, and humbling. And but if if you call me that you do, if you don't, that's fine, too. Got it. Well, thank you, Judge. I appreciate it, and uh, I'll look forward to uh, reading this thesis again when it's published. Maybe we'll have you back on to talk about the case a bit more. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Marvin Gaye singing Can I Get a Witness? Uh, If you want to comment uh, not just on the interview but anything else that we've covered thus far or anything else that might be on your mind, we're happy to cover anything and everything. You can call in at 800-848-9222. I found that really educational and really interesting. You know, you read these articles, you see these stories on the news, people protesting outside the show Parade. And I think it's so important to ask the question, why are they protesting? And um, that, I think, is a pretty good explanation as to why. All right, 800-848-9222. By the way, I want to encourage you. You know what's the I have a touch of obsessive-compulsive disorder in me. And, for instance, I mean, whatever. I don't want to go through all the examples of my OCD-type behavior. But right now, I just went on to my Twitter, at Frank Moreno. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And I have 8,897 followers. Do you know, I've been looking at this all day, um, do you know how irritating it is not to have 8,900, just to be three away from 8,900? The OCD aspect of me is just killing me with this. So if you can, if you want to help me deal with this, uh, I need three people to follow me on Twitter before the day is out, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash Fan. And that uh, Frank Morano imposter is still out there. 
So if somebody that looks like me says to you, direct message me or something like that, it is absolutely not me. If I ever want to communicate you with you more, I'll say email me. And I'll give you my emails, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. A whole lot of other stuff to get through throughout the next couple of hours. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. The Iranian hostage crisis of the early 1980s. Uh, I mean, technically it began in 1979, but it stretched into 1981. It dominated the year 1980. And I think when it was, it, the, the news came that the hostages were finally going to be released, Walter Cronkite, so, sort of at that time, the voice of... Of America. And good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thank you for listening. Walter Cronkite was someone who was widely respected by the Vox Populi and who sort of spoke for the country, it seemed. He summed up the situation when, it, when we came to learn that the hostages, the American hostages, were coming home from Iran. It was a long and harrowing ordeal for the hostages their families, and indeed the entire nation. And it was an ordeal that plagued the presidency of Jimmy Carter, an ordeal whose final resolution eluded his presidency by less than an hour. So that's exactly what happened. And those of you that were around at the time, you remember this. It was while Reagan was being sworn in that the Iranians released these American hostages that had been held for uh, over a year. 52 Americans held captive, released the day that Reagan was sworn in in 1981. And Jimmy Carter really did devote a lot of 1980 to this, ultimately unsuccessfully. But he was, after he left Washington, D.C., after he was no longer president, what did he do? Even though he was no longer president, he went to West Germany at the time to greet the hostages. That was his first act as a private citizen again, was to greet the hostages that he worked so hard and ultimately was unsuccessful, uh, well, at least unsuccessful in freeing while he was president. And, you know, you compare the I – want, I want to play for you. This is a phone call of Jimmy Carter on the phone with President-elect Ronald Reagan. And – this is the day that Reagan is going to be sworn in. Now, we only hear Jimmy Carter's side of the conversation, but compare the civility and the continuity of government back then in 1981 with what we see today when one person leaves and another person comes in of the opposite political party. Uh, this is Jimmy Carter talking with Ronald Reagan, January 20th, 1981. Listen, President. 
All right. Governor, good morning. How you doing? Um, now, place to call for earlier. I just want to let you know that the planes are at the end of the runway. That's right. That's what we presume. And um, all the money was cleared and the Iranians were notified about roughly uh, 25 minutes ago, about 8.05. And uh, so we, I'll, we, we'll uh, let you know when they take off, but it's this close. We're very proud. Got a lot of good teams. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restrict my uh, group going over to uh, Germany only to the ones who, are, uh, who have been intimately and deeply involved in the Iranian question. Because everybody wants to go, so I just thought I'd tell you that so you know if anybody asks you. Good luck to you, and thank you very much. I'll see you later on for the ceremonies. God bless you. Thank you, sir. Bye. Uh, I'll say once again, whatever Jimmy Carter's failings as a president, and look, there were obviously many, the class in which this man carries himself and carried himself is really a sight to behold. I'll see you at the ceremony later. Good luck to you. Um, Not about fomenting the anger of his supporters to resist whatever Reagan was doing. I thought I would let you know, this is who's going to Germany to greet the hostages in case anyone asks you. I think that's a very classy way to handle a pivotal foreign policy issue like this one in the midst of a major transition. Now, why are we talking about this? Front page of Sunday's New York Times A wild story. The story, there's been a rumor for literally decades that maybe the Reagan campaign persuaded the Iranians to hold on to those hostages until Reagan was president. And Congress investigated it and they debunked this. They found that that was not true. Well, Sunday... Uh, with this New York Times story, there was uh, a tidal wave about this. And even though it's been more than four decades, Ben Barnes, who is the linchpin of what we're learning about the story now, said he remembers this vividly. Now, who was Ben Barnes? Ben Barnes was a very well-respected Texas politician and uh, real estate magnate and uh, power broker, crisis manager. He was the Texas, the uh, speaker of the Texas House of Representatives. He was the lieutenant governor of Texas, a top fundraiser for a whole bunch of politicians over the years. And his longtime political mentor, John Connolly, who you may remember when he was a Democrat, John Connolly was with uh, John F. Kennedy when John F. Kennedy was shot. Connolly was shot also, I think, in the wrist. And Connolly ultimately became a Republican, ran for president himself as a Republican, played a leading role in the Nixon administration. Reagan offered him the role of Secretary of Energy. But anyway, Connolly invites Barnes on a mission to the Middle East. And what Barnes said he didn't realize until later was the real purpose of the mission. To sabotage, or as the birthday boy William Shatner would say, sabotage the re-election campaign of President Jimmy Carter. 
It was 1980, and Carter was in the White House, bedeviled by a hostage crisis in Iran that had paralyzed his presidency and really hurt his attempts to win a second term. His best chance for victory was to free the 52 Americans held captive before Election Day. And that was something that Barnes said his mentor was determined to prevent. So John Connolly, a titan of American politics and former Texas governor who served three presidents and had just lost his own bid for the White House, a former Democrat turned Republican, he was all in for Ronald Reagan. He was resolved to help Reagan beat Jimmy Carter. And in the process, Barnes said Connolly wanted to make his own case for becoming Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense in the new Reagan administration. Ultimately, he didn't get either of those. Reagan offered him Secretary of Energy, but Connolly turned it down. So what happened next, Barnes has kept secret for 43 years. Connolly took him to one Middle Eastern capital after another that summer, meeting with a host of regional leaders to deliver a blunt message to be passed to Iran. Don't release the hostages before the election. Reagan will win and give you a better deal. Then, shortly after returning home, Barnes said Connolly reported to William Casey, the chairman of Reagan's campaign and later the director of the CIA, briefing him about the trip in an airport lounge. Carter's camp had long suspected that Bill Casey or someone else in Reagan's orbit sought to secretly torpedo efforts to liberate these hostages before the election, and books have been written on what came to be called the October Surprise. But congressional investigations debunked this, And it was thought to be sort of just a conspiracy theory. Well, like a lot of conspiracy theories, it looks like this one might be true. Connolly did not figure into any of those congressional investigations. His involvement, as described by Barnes, adds a new understanding to what may have happened in that year, 1980. So with Carter, President Carter, now 58 years old and in hospice, Barnes said he felt compelled to come forward to correct the record. Quote, history needs to know that this happened. Barnes turns 85 next month. He said, I think it's so significant, and I guess knowing the end is near for President Carter, put it on my mind more and more and more. I just feel like we've got to get it down some way. Now, I want you to understand Barnes is no shady foreign arms dealer with questionable questionable credibility like some of the other characters who have fueled previous versions of the October Surprise Theory. This was someone that was one of the most prominent figures in Texas, the youngest speaker of the Texas House, the lieutenant governor. He was such an influential figure that he helped a young George W. Bush get into the Texas Air National Guard rather than be exposed to the draft and sent to Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson predicted that Barnes would become president someday. So confirming Barnes's account is very problematic after so much time. Connolly has died. So many of the other central figures, uh, Bill Casey, has died. Um, A lot of these characters involved have long since died, and Barnes has no diaries or memos at all to corroborate his account, 
But he has no obvious reason to make up the story. And he did express some trepidation at going public because of the reaction of some of his fellow Democrats. He's still a Democrat, unlike Connolly, who switched parties. Barnes identified four living people he said he had confided in over the years. Mark Upsgrove, the president of the LBJ Foundation. Tom Johnson, a former aide to Lyndon Johnson, who later became publisher of the L.A. Times. Um, Larry Temple, a former aide to John Connolly. And H.W. Brands, a University of Texas historian. I've actually read some of H.W. Brands' books. He's very a very interesting fellow. I'm curious what you think of this. Do you believe this? Do you believe that John Connolly and Bill Casey persuaded the Iranians to hold on to the hostages until after the election? If so, if you do believe this, how should we view history? as it relates to what occurred with the hostages in the 1980 elections. We've seen other things like this. There were rumors that uh, Richard Nixon did something similar to this in 1968 with respect to Vietnam. If you don't believe this, then why would Barnes make this up? I don't think he would do it for attention. If it was all about attention, he could have done it, um, he could have done it any time over the last 40 years. I don't think he's doing it because he's senile. He doesn't seem senile. He seems to have a pretty vivid recollection of what happened. I don't think he's doing it for political gain. What political gain could there be for him at this point? What's your take on this revelation? Now, I do want to point out, though, that the Iranians, the the same group of fundamentalist uh, Shiite Muslims that is in power in Iran today, which came to power in 1979, I don't think they needed any help in not giving, not releasing the hostages while Carter was president. I think that whatever the Reagan campaign did or did not do, I think they were not going to release these hostages while Carter was president anyway because they hated Carter. They viewed Carter as uh, somebody that wanted to bring back the Shah, as a strong ally of the Shah, and they viewed him as someone that was not at all going to be friendly to their regime. So I don't think they needed any extra incentive, but it's interesting that this story is coming out now. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. Jonathan Alter, who is one of the great, uh, great historians of the Carter administration, was on the PBS NewsHour yesterday talking about this revelation. This is what he had to say. Well, this is a pretty big deal um, because what you have is the campaign of a candidate for president who is prolonging the captivity of Americans at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran uh, in order to achieve uh, a political victory. Um now, this the deal itself has not been completely nailed down, but there is considerable circumstantial evidence that this took place. And um, this latest story is just another piece of that evidence. But it's been accumulating over the years. Uh, this was rumored at the time there was a congressional investigation in 1992 that said there was quite a bit of uh suggestive evidence, but no smoking gun. 
And in the time since then, there have been really two major disclosures that have lent credence to this. But it's it was an extremely unpatriotic move on the part of William Casey, who was Ronald Reagan's campaign manager and later his director of the CIA. Now, as far as whether the hostages have been released before the election, whether Jimmy Carter would have won, um, that is unknowable. Jimmy Carter believes so, and the polls were actually much closer than the final result in the uh, weeks just before the election. It turned out to be a landslide. But there were a number of other factors in 1980, including a, a wretched economy. So we can't know for sure that if this hadn't happened, history would be different. But we do know for sure that there was a plot by the Reagan campaign to do Carter dirty. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Six open lines. You're welcome to comment on anything else we've covered thus far as well. Russ is in White Plains. Hello, Russ. Hey, Frank. The question is why now? That's the real question. It's the same question with Leo Frank, and you can easily go and see on Google 100 reasons why Leo Frank is guilty. Now, why now, Leo Frank? Let me say, why now are we finding out about Iranians? We all knew this. They're doing it now because they want to present Hunter's laptop as some way of manipulating the election. That's what Democrats are doing. That's why the New York Times is doing this. We knew this was true. The Iranians sent a message. The U.S. system is so corrupt, they have no respect for us, and the, and we've been kept in the dark for 40 years. But if I can return well, real but, quick. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to cut you off, Russ. You could say whatever you want real about quick. Leo Frank. I'll, I'll, uh, but you. just let me ask you. So you're saying you believe this version of what occurred. You believe the Reagan campaign uh, did this sort of lobbying to keep these hostages from being freed. Frank, I was alive at the time, and I knew at that time what was going on. And I believe a large number of people in this country know that's what's going on. The question is, why is the New York Times telling us now? They're telling us this now. And this guy's not doing it Jimmy Carter's on his deathbed. Jimmy Carter's probably not even aware what's going on. This is, this is BS, okay? It's a way to connect, like you said, Nixon and the stolen election to October surprises, and they presented the Hunter laptop as a, a, stolen, a, a stolen election surprise. And they're going to try and retread that again. But if I can real quick, Go ahead, Frank, yeah. but real quick, um, there are a lot of things not known. There were four Jewish people on Leo Frank's jury, okay? Leo Frank confessed to what was going on, but there was no cross-examined. Leo Frank and his friends were trying to frame a black night watchman. Leo Frank threw the N-word around. Anybody who wants to pretend Leo Frank is not guilty is doing it for a reason. Now, it was February, Black History Month, and now March, Women History Month, that they're presenting a play that ran for eight weeks, 25 years ago. Now, why are they doing this now? That's why people are showing up outside that theater. And, Frank, I say that as someone who believed this Leo Frank fairy tale up until whatever it was two months ago. And if you look into it, you can see that it's a, a fairy tale that has been concocted. His own wife knew he was guilty. She refused to be buried next to him. The guy was a criminal. And why these people, and I don't want to say these people because I'm Jew hyphenish too. I had a great grandmother who was Jewish. She spoke, spoke only Yiddish. I loved her. My grandmother and grandfather are Jewish. I am a Jew hyphenish person. And this Leo Frank thing reflects badly on all people. Okay, Frank, thanks for letting me. Thanks, uh, Russ. Well, let me ask you, Russ, before you, before you go, 
Why uh, you heard Judge uh, Judge Manning say that um, that w- we don't know for sure that Leo Frank was not guilty, but she said we do know that uh, Conley's version of what he testified to as a witness was inaccurate. Do you share that view? Uh, Conley made four confessions. Okay, he made four statements. He was beaten by the police, and believe me, in the South, they wanted to find a black man guilty of killing a young white girl. Okay, now evidence was planted that showed a shirt was covered in blood. Now, and they discovered that shirt was never worn. It was wiped in blood and planted in the guy's house. Okay, so they knew what they were doing. They were going to have a black man lynched. And what happened to Leo Frank is what's called a just world hypothesis. He was supposed to be lynched, and they used his influence. The governor who gave him a commutation, he didn't pardon him. He wasn't exonerated. The governor who gave him a commutation two weeks before the governor left office was a a partner in the law firm that represented Leo Frank. So he essentially commuted the sentence of his own client. He was guilty. They knew he was guilty. And the people who persist in this have an agenda. Okay, that's what's going on. Thank you, Russ. Joe is on Staten Island. Hello, Joe. Hi, Frank. I think you're missing the big elephant in the room. Uh, I think the um, Iran uh, contragate uh, connection might have something to do with uh, the hostages being kept uh, so long in Tehran. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean exactly? Obviously, I'm familiar with Iran Contra, but uh, tell me, tell me exactly what you think the link is. Well, uh, uh, Congress passed a law barring any any uh, arms being sent to the Contras in uh, Nicaragua. I right, believe. right. Yeah, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with Iran Contra. But tell me what you think the link is to the the hostage situation. Well, Reagan wanted to send arms to. Um, to, to the Contras, but the Congress forbid it. So right, I, I'm familiar with Iran Contra, but this this th- situation in 1980 that we're talking about with these 53 hostages freed and the revelation from Barnes about Connolly's role and Bill Casey's role. Focus on that um, and tell me how it relates to the subsequent scandal with Iran Contra. Well, like, you know, the, the fact that uh, that they were kept there so long, there must have been uh, some kind of motive, and the only motive I can think of really is to. Uh, for Reagan to help the Contras, though. I mean, that was on his mind constantly, though. And uh, Congress uh, forbid it. And he wanted to get around the the, uh, the Congress to, to somehow use right. Iran thank, to, thank uh, you, Joe. I'm very familiar with Iran Contra. I, I, I don't need a a rehash of what uh, what Poindexter did or Oliver North did or uh, anything uh, anything along uh, along those lines. Uh, but I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Lynn is in Maryland. Uh, hello there, Lynn. Hey, Frank, I originally called in to discuss the Leo Frank's case because I've read a couple books about it, and I don't need to say too much more. I could add a few more details. Sure, whatever your, you like. Er, your earlier caller really nailed it. But I want to say uh, with respect to the Iranian hostage situation, which I've also read quite a bit about, the individual you want to interview on this is a former Reagan staffer who helped get him elected, Barbara Honiger. She's written the definitive account of this called October Surprise. Uh, another book on the subject was also published later by Gary Sick, who was a national security advisor, Jimmy Carter. And the question you're asking is the linkage between Iran-Contra, the Iranian host- and the Iranian host- that in the Iranian hostages situation is that the relationship with the Iranians was the foundation for Iran-Contra in the sense that a war was going on between Iran and Iraq. And 
the United States was essentially providing intelligence and logistical support to Saddam Hussein, who had been who was our client, while at the same time the Israelis were the uh, intermediaries through which the United States was supplying arms to Iran, and that's because most of uh, Iran's military infrastructure was uh, had, uh, under the Shah had been developed using United States equipment, United States particular, particularly their air force. And so there was already a basis for the United States to be provi- to be required to supply uh, uh, support to Iran through the Israelis. That was the whole linchpin to the Iran-Contra situation, as Ali North explained. He th- thought it was a neat idea. So uh, the one you want to interview on this is Barbara Honecker. So does Honecker, does Honecker um, support Barnes's version of what happened? Uh, uh, oh, are you kidding? <laughs> She was on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you really should try to get to interview her on this. She's a, if she, I, I'm, I think she's still around. <laughs> I don't think she's died yet, but her book is really the definitive account of this and fleshes out the details of it and fills it in because there are a lot of contingencies going on. And like I say, central to this was the idea of maintaining that war between Iran and Iraq. That mm-hmm. was the policy. That was a, a critical policy. As far as Leo Frank goes, as you know, uh, as has already been explained by your earlier caller, and I'm Jewish like him, and I, I concur with him completely based on what I've read. If I had been sitting on that jury, I would have convicted Franks easily. He was caught lying uh, several times to the, you know, in his account of what happened. So uh, Lucille Franks – look, Leo Franks was notorious for predatory sexual behavior down there. And because of his privileged position, his family from up in New York, uh, he even contracted a sexually transmitted disease and spread that to his wife, Lucille, who was diagnosed with it by a doctor. She wasn't even sleeping with him because of it. She refused to be buried alongside him in the same cemetery. And I believe her remains are up in Brooklyn uh, to this day. So. Uh, this is really about the role of the Masonic organization, the B'nai B'rith, a powerful coterie of New York interests, New York lawyers, the New York Times. And this is the origin, of course, of the the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. And if you want to see the kind of politics that they conduct now, it goes right back to the Leo Franks case. Okay. Yeah, uh, he was definitely trying to throw uh, Jim Connolly under the bus. There's There's no doubt about that in my mind. All right. Thank you, Lynn. I guess people, there's still plenty of people that do believe uh, Frank is guilty, clearly. Uh, Although uh, it looks to me like the overwhelming consensus in terms of people that have looked at at this case, they believe that uh, Jim Connolly was the person responsible. But I guess, you know, people have varying views. It's 110 years later. We may never know the truth. But there's a show where we like to explore some of those mysteries. Am I right? All right. 800-848-9222. Eight open lines if there's anything that you want to comment on. Uh, and We're ready to take your calls on anything and everything. I want to thank two people who responded to my call to follow me on Twitter. Uh, Noam Layden the WABC News and Content Distribution Director, very nice, and Brian Murphy, who is from Long Beach. I don't know much else about Brian Murphy other than that. But uh, my thanks to both of them. So I'm now just one away from having my OCD kind of satiated temporarily. All right. um, I saw something else on television on Sunday 
that I found very interesting. I'll bring it to your attention in a moment. Let me say a quick hello to Joe in Florida, though. Hello, Joe. Hey, good morning. How you doing, Frank? Morning, Joe. You know, I think one of the things that helped us that helped us get our mind off of the hostages was John Lennon's assassination right after that. Right, but that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what Barnes is saying here, does it? No, 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 no. I'm just saying it helped to get our minds distracted mm-hmm. from what was even more important, really. Right. Okay. That's a, that's a fair point, uh, Joe. Thank you. Uh, I'm surprised there aren't more people taking issue with, um, you know, with what Barnes said or supporting what Barnes said. But, hey, it is what it is. Uh, we'll, we'll continue in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She came from Greece. She had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture at St. Martin's College. That's where I caught her eye. She told me that her dad was loaded. I said, in that case, I'll have a rum and Coca-Cola. She said, fine. And in 30 seconds' time, she said, I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. I want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. Well, what else could I do? I said, I'll see what I can do. I took her to a supermarket. I don't know why, but I had to start it somewhere. So it started there. I said, pretend you've got no money. She just laughed and said, oh, you're so funny. I said, yeah? Well, I can't see anyone else smiling at here. Are you sure? You want to live like common people? You want to see whatever common people see? You want to sleep with common people? You want to sleep with common people like me? But she didn't understand. She just smiled and held my hand. Where's a platinum barber shop? Cut your hair and get a job. Smile some plans and play some fool. Pretend you never went to school. But still you'll never get it right. When you're like Ah, love this song. It's one of my favorite William Shatner songs. Uh, Today is, of course, William Shatner's birthday. This is uh, William Shatner featuring uh, Joe Jackson and Ben Folds. Uh, Joe Jackson, as I understand it, was either the cousin or the lover of Carol from New Jersey. Uh, They have some sort of special connection. Uh, William Shatner, 92 years old uh, today. So, uh, happy birthday to William Shatner. I was just I was just looking during the break that uh, Shatner's going to be in New York, uh, and they're doing a rec- they're doing a um, they have a recreation of the original Star Trek set, the Bridge of the Enterprise, in uh, Ticonderoga. So I think he's going to be there in July. I may go up there and and see and see that Star Trek set. I've always wanted to go up there. Maybe we'll make a, we'll see if the dates work and we'll see if we can make a a whole thing out of it. That might be that might be fun. If you're interested in learning more, you can go to StarTrekTour.com. It's July seventh, eighth, and 9th. 
So I might I might check that out. Uh, John Delancey, I think, who plays Q, is going to be up there. Brent Spiner, who plays Data. It looks like uh, that could be a lot of fun. But speaking of television, I very rarely watch The Simpsons these days Be uh, for a bunch of reasons. One, it's not as good. It used to be wherever I was on Sunday night at 8 p.m., I would make sure that there was a television that I could watch The Simpsons. But over the last 10, 15 years, that has not been the case. The show is... I find I, I'll watch it if I'm home and, you know, I have nothing to do. I'll put it on. The, I will always make sure to watch Treehouse of Horror, which is still a classic. But it's really it's not as good. It's not as good. So. Um, last Sunday and the other reason is I if I can get an hour nap in between working, running around to all these social obligations that I have and uh, preparing for the show, I will try and do it you know, around eight-ish. So I'm asleep a lot of the times that it happens to be on. But anyway, Sunday, I think I had yet another social obligation, um, if memory serves, and I had to I had to get, uh, maybe not, I don't remember, but whatever. I, I was awake. I was awake, and I was working on the show, and I had an opportunity to put what I wanted on the television. I said, let me put The Simpsons on. And boy, was I glad that I did. Because the episode that happened to be on was a sequel to an episode that I remember from 32 years ago when The Simpsons was first on, or 33 years ago, from the first or second season of The Simpsons. This was a classic episode, the original one from uh, 32 years ago. Basically, Homer very selfishly forgets to get Marge a birthday gift or an anniversary gift, whatever the occasion was. And he decides to, the only thing that he can find to give her for a gift is a bowling ball. So she's not at all happy with him. She's not at all happy with this gift. She's not at all happy with her marriage. But she decides she's going to make the most of it. She takes the bowling ball and she starts taking bowling lessons. And her bowling instructor is someone named Jacques, played brilliantly, Frenchman, played brilliantly by the great Albert Brooks, who, the last time I was with William Shatner, we had a lengthy conversation about Albert Brooks, actually. And um, this is what, uh, this is what, uh, this was from this episode of The Simpsons 32 years ago. It is nice to meet you, Homer. Oh, no, no, Homer's my... Ball's name. I'm Marge. Your fingers are so slender, so feminine. The far too tapered for the ball you're using. You need something lighter, more delicate. Here, use my ball. Mm, no, no, thank you, Mr. Um, Brunswick. Call me Jacques. Jacques. Marge. Mm, I'll just use my ball. As you wish. Many people have senseless attachments to heavy, clumsy things such as this Homer of yours. So the ball says Homer on it because it was Homer's ball. He didn't have a gift. He gave his ball to her so he wouldn't get caught not having a gift. So anyway, I don't want to give away too much of the episode, but the because it is good and it's very well done and very ahead of its time in many ways. Jacques and Marge begin this very it's very clear they have an attraction to one another. 
And it's very clear that um, that Marge is unhappy with her marriage. And she's very taken with this Jacques, played brilliantly by Albert Brooks. Does not look like Albert Brooks, but voiced brilliantly by Albert Brooks. And even their bowling lessons become incredibly sensual. May I ask you a bold question? Sure. You've never bowled before? Never. No. No. Then I will teach you. Oh, I don't want to trouble you. Not at all. I am a professional. Roll the ball for me, Miles. Let me see your form. All right, but I'm not very good. Mm. I can hit that one pin all right, but the rest of them don't even wobble. I can help you, Miles. Pick up the ball. Mm. Pick up Homer. Pick him up. Oh. Now throw. But... Throw, damn you. You're a very good teacher. Yes, I am a very good teacher, and I can teach you everything. I can tell you what the little arrows on the wood floor mean. Mm. Which frame is the beer frame? I bet you don't know how to make a 5-7-10 split, do you, March? No. Well, first of all, you yelled, the eight pin is a cop. <laughs> Let it out, March. Laugh loud. <laughs> Laugh out loud. You'll lose weight. <laughs> Oh, that's very funny. Feels good. Oh, dear, I didn't realize there was so much to this game. What do you charge for lessons? $25. $25? It's a $40 value. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. When do we start? We have already begun. So you see how that goes. And um, she's very tempted to have an affair with this Jacques. They go and have brunch, and ultimately she stays true to Homer, and she doesn't cheat on Homer. And I was so pleased because this character, Jacques, in the history of The Simpsons, is one of the best one-off characters that never came back. So I'm watching this, The Simpsons, on Sunday. And it's another bowling-themed episode, which is not in and of itself unique because Homer's a big bowler and there's a lot of bowling that goes on in The Simpsons. I'm watching it. And Jacques is back for the first time in 33 years. Now, every once in a while, you get lucky like this. You get lucky after you were a fan of Star Trek The Next Generation, and then you started watching Deep Space Nine, and then you kind of fell out of Star Trek The Next Generation. Excuse me, you fell out of Deep Space Nine, and then you tune in, and what happens the night that you tune in? Worf is joining the cast of Deep Space Nine. That is how big that is. It's um, You used to be a big wrestling fan, and you haven't watched wrestling in many years. You say, oh, let me turn it on out of curiosity. Oh, it just so happens this is the night Sting is coming to Monday Night Raw. Uh, how lucky are you? That's what it was like for me. And I'm trying to come up with some other analogies that if you don't follow The Simpsons might, might make this make you appreciate what a unique moment it was. So anyway, the episode was great. It's called Pin Gal, and Marge takes bowling lessons once again, and she ends up, I don't want to spoil the plot if you haven't seen it yet, if you taped it, but she ends up taking lessons once again from this French bowling instructor, Jacques. And Albert Brooks, 33 years later, reprised his role as Jacques, and he's great. The episode was phenomenal. Here's what a whole bunch of Simpsons fans all over the Internet are taking issue with. In the episode, Homer has no knowledge of Marge and Jacques' history, meaning their near, near affair. And if you watch that first episode from 33 years ago, they shouldn't. It's a direct continuation of that episode. But 
they're saying that this goes against events in a season six episode, another Simpsons clip show where Homer was informed of the almost affair. In that episode, and I barely remember this because it was just another one of these clip shows, which, as the title suggests, is basically an excuse not to have to write a new story. In that episode, Homer and Marge confess to each other all the almost affairs that they had, and they show clips on for the viewer of what happened. But uh, so people are saying that this is an inconsistency, that Homer should know about this Marge and Jacques history. And all I could think as I'm reading all these people um, complain about the inconsistency in The Simpsons is you need to get a life. This is absolutely ridiculous. There is absolutely no reason to get upset about this. You're worried about consistency or inconsistency with The Simpsons? How about the fact that the show's been on for 33 or 34 years and the baby... Who should be, you know, having three children of her own by now. She's still sucking on a pacifier. No one has aged on the show. I mean, so to not take into account what happened on a clip show, I think uh, is just fine. It's, It's just fine. And we've seen other shows do this before. Pick and choose what continuity they want to uh, honor. And high-profile shows as well. They call it retconning, right? But another Twitter user added, I don't know if I like the idea of The Simpsons basically retconning Marge, telling Homer how she almost cheated on him with Jacques on another Simpsons clip show and having it be that Marge never told Homer about it. And there's all sorts of other people reacting to this. Guys, it's a show where the people on it don't even have five fingers. It's a fictional show. It's a silly show. Pure idiots. It's, it's, oh, I, I think the clip shows, as far as I'm concerned, are sort of immune to canon, to the rules of canon, as far as I'm concerned. Um, what do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Why can't you just think that Homer's just so dopey that he forgot and doesn't remember? That's also a possibility. That's also a possibility. But. In the episode, it's pretty clear that he would have remembered. He goes out of his way to find Jacques as as a renowned bowling instructor. So, I mean, you'd think he'd put two and two together for something as dramatic as your wife almost cheating on you. But that's another good point. That's another good point, uh, that Homer could have just forgotten about it. And by the way, um, uh, The Simpsons was renewed for season 35 and 36, Earlier this year by Fox, which means the show will extend its standing as the longest running scripted series in TV history. So that's that. All right. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Hi. I just wanted to, uh, I guess maybe the time has passed, share that there, a journalist named Robert Perry was the one that originally came up with the October surprise. And... Um, he questioned the the evidence that uh, Casey was at a men's uh, club in San Francisco, north of San Francisco, called the Bohemian Club, where uh, allegedly it, the documents prove that Casey was at the Grove uh, the weekend of July 26 and 27, 
when the alleged meeting with the Iranians took was taking place in Madrid, according to the conspiracy theory. So at the time, in 1993, Congress actually undertook an investigation. Right, I, I mentioned that. It, yeah, I just wanted to say, though, that um, it, 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 there's added evidence from what this, this, this you know, guy's talking about. But at the time, a congressional investigation established that uh, Casey was at the Bohemian Grove that weekend. Right. Well, so but none of the congressional investigation dealt with John Connolly's role in that whole thing. No, you're absolutely right. right. So I'm that's really what that's Casey. what's that's what's new about this. And, and thank you. And apparently H.W. Brands and uh, Tom Johnson and the other people that uh, Barnes is claiming that he spoke to about this over the years, they're all saying, yes, Barnes did tell us this years ago. So his story, at least on that end, is a fairly consistent one. 800-848-9222. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. Thanks for mentioning my name. Uh, Joe Jackson is my cousin. <laughs> okay. I just well, wanted to clarify that. But I remember that he did perform um, with William Shatner. Um I had heard about that a long time ago. So Yeah, it's a terrific song. A terrific song. I'd love to see them collaborate again. Yes. I, I it was very nice to hear that. But there was another Jackson that was on television today, um, on the Tamarin Hall show. Reggie Jackson. Oh what, what why was... he looks so different. You you would barely recognize What him. was he talking about? Oh, he has a book out. Oh, maybe we'll reach out yeah. to him. That's interesting. Yes, I think you should. Definitely. Five five hundred sixty three home runs, I believe. That's right. But well, he looks so different. He has no hair anymore whatsoever. Yeah, well, it happens to all of us, I guess. Thank you, Carl. And I just looked that up. That was from memory. Reggie Jackson absolutely did have five hundred sixty three home runs. That's pretty good, I will say. Thank you. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything that we're talking about or anything that you're interested in commenting on, you're welcome to do so. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
You know, I, I'm trying to stop this uh, Facebook imposter of mine, and it's basically, it's Frank Morano, same profile picture as me, but he's got an accent mark over the O, and he's reaching out to all my followers openly and saying, send me a direct message. I keep reporting these comments, but he keeps, um, I, keep, I keep reporting them to Facebook, but he keeps reaching out to people. So don't be fooled. If there's an accent mark over the O, it's not me. A uh, big thank you to everyone else who has now helped me not be at 8,999 followers. Corey Steve, uh, Mike Deffy, Susan Widener, and city dweller Barbara. So uh, thank you to everybody. Hey, you know, I was out to dinner on uh, Sunday, of course. It's the day that uh, that everybody's inviting me to things. So I was out to dinner on Sunday for uh, with my uncle and my mom and their significant others and my wife. And my wife's birthday is coming up this week. And it's um, my uncle's birthday this week as well. So we usually will do a dinner um, for both of them at the same time. And my uncle has his fiancée with him. And she she's Filipino, as I've talked about before. And she does something very interesting. At the end of the dinner, when other people get dessert or coffee or tea, she gets um, – and she, I think, had some dessert too. But she gets just – a cup of hot water, hot water. And it reminded me, you know, not long ago, I watched the episode of that Jerry Seinfeld show. Actually, it was a while ago, but that Jerry Seinfeld show, Comedians in Cars Drinking Coffee, Getting Coffee. And it's a great show, especially if you're interested in the comedians that he's interviewing. And it's basically exactly what it sounds like. They take a car ride to a diner or a coffee shop, they drink coffee, and they talk. It's the whole show. It's interesting. I like it. So uh, Jerry is interviewing Howard Stern, and Howard Stern at that time didn't drink coffee. So he's just drinking hot water, and that's apparently a big part of his routine. I have to say, I don't, uh, I don't know that I fully get the appeal of hot water. I don't get it. I don't get if it's supposed to be um, soothing for you. I don't get if it's supposed to be medicinal. I don't get if it's supposed to be satiating uh, hunger-wise. I can understand coffee. I can understand tea. I can understand room temperature water, cold water on a hot day, maybe hot water with it's chilly out. But just to regularly consume just plain old regular hot water, I mean, I'm going to try it because I am curious after seeing Pam's situation with the hot water and seeing uh, and seeing the devotion that the hot water people have to this. It's never really been my thing. Now, Matt, you're not a coffee drinker, right? No, I don't drink coffee. When you're talking about the hot water, because I told you I just started watching Ted Lasso, and in the very first episode when he gets the tea, and he goes, I always thought tea was just brown hot water. <laughs> and it is. It's just terrible. <laughs> no, I drink tea if I feel sick is the, really the only time I drink really any kind of hot liquid. I just don't drink coffee or tea other than that when I feel my throat needs soothing. Other than that, I I drink, I drink um, either soda, but I'll drink um, any kind of like lemonade or anything like that. That's not hot. I just don't like hot stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do like hot stuff, right? I just I'm not sure that I get the appeal of hot water. I mean, throw a tea bag in there, even if you don't like caffeine. There's still plenty. I mean, I'm uh, I'm drinking some decaffeinated tea right now. Some great peppermint herbal tea that we have. Yeah, I would drink tea over just hot water. 
That's what I don't get. I need some kind of flavoring. I'm curious if there are any hot water devotees out there. And just explain to me the appeal. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. Maybe I'll try that right now. Get some hot water. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, one of the many uh, email newsletters that I subscribe to is called Morning Brew, and it's really neat. They have little news items in there and a lot of stories that I end up talking about on the air. Um, I find in there, and it's just some other interesting things. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a dating site for conspiracy theorists. Did you know that? And it snapped up 1,500 users after its release in one month. I wouldn't have known that but for Morning Brew. Now, would my life be pretty much the same had I not learned that? Yes. Yes, it would. That's a fair point. Um, But uh, there's all sorts of things you learn in there. And anyway, they do these weekly questions. And most of the time I'll read them and then I'll just sort of forget about it. But last week... They asked a question in this newsletter, The Morning Brew, that I have to tell you, I did spend a lot of time thinking about. And I'll give you my answer to it, but I'd, I'd like to hear yours. The question they asked last week was, if you could elect any fictional character as U.S. president, who would it be? And so they picked this week a few of their favorite responses, some of which I think are pretty amusing. But honestly, nobody is anyone that I would pick um, to honestly be the president. I looked at it as a serious question. Here are the questions. Uh, Tristan in Tacoma, Washington, said Kramer from Seinfeld. Pretty sure it's self-explanatory. Uh, Matt from Sunnyside, New York, Mikey from the Goonies, not modern day Sean Astin, but the kid who rallied his friends, brother and high school girls are underground to find treasure. If he can convince them of that, imagine what he could get Congress to do. The Equalizer. I guess that's a character played by Queen Latifah. I'm not I'm not familiar with with her. I mean, I'm familiar with Queen Latifah, not the Equalizer. Fights for good, takes no back talk and always wins. Here's an interesting uh, take. But again, I don't think it's a serious pick. Dan from Duluth, Minnesota, says the dude from the Big Lebowski, if only for the more relaxed dress code. Um, 
Carolyn from Little Rock, Rock, Arkansas says Buffy from the series Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Uh, Youssef says future trunks from Dragon Ball Z. This guy gets things done. And I figured let me go and see what other people say. And it turns out this has actually been a question that people have debated all over the Internet, all over places for years. What about you? What is your favorite, if you had to pick, not your favorite, but if you could make a fictional character, can't be someone that's based on a real-life person, but a totally fictional character, doesn't matter if it's from books, comic books, television, radio, or TV, or film, if you make any fictional character president, who would you be? Who would you pick? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. And I'll tell you, um, one of the popular picks on a lot of articles about this and a lot of uh, someone that a lot of people voted for was actually someone that played a president on television, on TV's The West Wing, which is a show that I recently watched and I liked. Uh, Martin Sheen played Jed Bartlett. And a lot of people said they would like to have Jed Bartlett as their president. We need to cut taxes for one reason. The American people know how to spend their money better than the federal government does. President, your rebuttal. There it is. What the hell? He's got it. That's the 10-word answer my staff's been looking for for two weeks. There it is. 10-word answers can kill you in political campaigns. They're the tip of the sword. Here's my question. What are the next 10 words of your answer? Your taxes are too high, so are mine. Give me the next 10 words. How are we going to do it? Give me 10 after that. I'll drop out of the race right now. So I I like Jed Bartlett as a character. And I think he was certainly a good man, a wise man, and uh, a great statesman. Sort of like in terms of character, sort of like Jimmy Carter, actually. But in terms of his policies and, and effectiveness, he's just not where I am. Uh, so I would not have picked Jed Bartlett as my pick. He would not have been my pick. But I thought it was a good pick. Initially, my first uh, pick was Mr. Smith. Jefferson Smith from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington because that whole movie is about how honest he is. And if if there's something that we could use more of in government, it's honesty. And certainly Jefferson Smith fits that bill. This is what... Uh, I stand guilty as framed because Section 40 is graft. And I was ready to say so. I was ready to tell you that a certain man in my state, a Mr. James Taylor, wanted to put through this dam for his own profit. A man who controls a political machine... And controls everything else worth controlling in my state. Yes, and a man even powerful enough to control congressmen. And I saw three of them in his room the day I went up to see him. The senator yield. Sir, I will not yield. He's fiery. He's passionate. He's honest. All of which is important. But the thing that I wondered, he was my initial pick. But then I wondered, wait a minute. Does, did he, is he a little too naive to run the bureaucracy. I mean, we saw what happened with someone who was never involved in politics, Trump, and how he was taken advantage of by his own bureaucracy. You saw that to some extent with uh, George W. Bush. And you, you see this, you saw that to some extent with Jimmy Carter. 
do you need somebody that's a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger willed, a little bit stronger of a leader? So I said, let me see what other people uh, would would pick. And so it turns out that um, that one of the popular picks, and a lot of pre- people that were fictional presidents like um, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson in Mars Attacks, uh, Jeff Bridges in The Contender, uh, a couple of other people, Selena Meyer as Veep, all of those folks got got picked. But it turns out one of the popular picks was actually another Star Trek captain other than the one that we were talking about before, and that's Captain Picard, Jean-Luc Picard, the captain of the Enterprise. He's certainly a strong leader. But the question of justice has concerned me greatly of late. And I say to any creature who may be listening, there can be no justice so long as laws are absolute. Even life itself is an exercise in exceptions. And uh, look, I get it. He's a strong leader. He's kind of a, a good mix of a warrior and a diplomat, very diplomatic. He uh, has, commands the respect of his men. He seems fair. He, he really embodies a lot, of, a lot of the attributes of a good leader. However, a couple of things. One, he I'm not, even though he's got an English accent on the show, he's not from the United States. He's not born in the United States. He's born in France. So, I mean, I'd like to at least keep it somewhat realistic. He's not constitutionally eligible for the office. So I'm looking at some of the other people that folks picked, and most of these are folks that I'm not familiar with, and I'd like to hear yours. Give me, give me your... If you could make any fictional character president, who would it be? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Some folks said it would be Gandalf the Grey from The Hobbit. Other people said Professor Minerva from the Harry Potter series. Uh, some people even said Kermit the Frog. Uh, some people said um, President Laura Roslin from the new version of Battlestar Galactica. Other people said Colonel or Jack O'Neill from Stargate. I'll tell you, though... Seeing that uh, so many people picked Captain Picard, it led me to think of another Patrick Stewart role. And I'll be honest with you, I'll tell you who I think would be a phenomenal president. And I'd vote for this person tomorrow. Professor Charles Xavier, the leader of the X-Men. Uh, from the comic book, the X-Men, the TV show, the X-Men, the movie, the X-Men, any which way, here's a guy who is a brilliant man. He is a born leader. He's an educator. He is an incredible guy. And he doesn't seem, he seems able to deal with real world problems real-world crises, unlike a lot of intellectual, uh, pardon the term, eggheads who whose ideas may work very well in a textbook or in theory, but when they actually have to manage a real-world problem, they're nowhere to be found. So that's my pick. I'd like to hear yours. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on anything else we've covered as well. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I called about the, the hot water. Be my guest. Um, I, well, I think people drink hot water because it, it, it's a routine or uh, a ceremony. You you know, like in the morning, you're used to drinking coffee or you gave up caffeine or something. You may want to just 
you don't want to have a Coca-Cola. You want to have something warm. So you might just drink warm water because it's what you're used to doing. Uh, when Howard Stern was drinking hot water, he probably would have felt like a Mamaluke just sitting there twir- twirling your thumb. So, all right, let me have something to drink. Let me have hot water. It's uh, And when I go out to drink with my friends, I don't drink much. I'll have a non-alcoholic beer because I want to be included in the ceremony. Right, right. It makes and I don't want to. I don't want to have a Coca-Cola because it's not in the ceremony. So maybe that's why people drink hot water. Also, uh, I, I don't know. I know heroin addicts that used to inject hot water when they didn't have heroin because it was made them feel better going through the routine. So I think it's not the substance that you're drinking. It's more of the the routine or ceremony part of it. What do well, you think? I, I can I can buy that, but so in your view, it's people that used to drink coffee and have now made this transition to hot water, or they just want to be involved. Like Howard Stern, he maybe never would have drinking coffee, but sitting there watching everybody else drink something hot, no, well, and you're just as I understand, thumb, you know? as I understand, Howard Stern actually he includes hot water as part of his daily routine every day. All that I don't understand, but you understand where I was coming yeah, from. Yeah, no, I do, and and to... I can relate. I can uh, absolutely relate. I mean, during COVID, and thanks for the call, Rick. Um, during the during uh, the COVID pandemic, when it was hot, you know, really a big deal, and everything was locked down. Restaurants were closed, bars were closed, um, workplaces were closed. I still went to work every day. Everyone in the world was getting sloshed. I mean, we saw article after article about how how drunk everyone was getting all the time. And you know who the one person who was not getting drunk at that time? It was me because it was during Lent. Now, imagine my frustration when I, you know, I have a drink now and again, and the rest of the world is all getting tanked, and I am am keeping (laughs) my vow of sobriety. So what did I do? I would drink some, I think it was... I would drink unsweetened iced tea in a bourbon glass and I would fill it so that it was room temperature and that and only fill a little bit just like I would bourbon. And I would sit there um, as I'd be at home with my wife or uh, even having a cigar or watching television and act and sip it as if I was sipping bourbon. Only it was unsweetened iced tea. So I uh, I can absolutely relate to the sort of the, I don't know what you call that, the the ephemeral, not ephemeral, but the, the feel of doing something because you're in the habit of doing it. But uh, so far I am disappointed at the lack of responses on my question of the best or what fictional character you'd like to see as president. Let me check in with uh, people weighing in on that. Scintillating, uh, scintillating uh, suggestions thus far. I got four. Let me hear them. First one I thought of, MacGyver. Why MacGyver? Because he knows how to put together gadgets. He can think on his feet. But how often does the president need to put together gadgets? Well, maybe he'd be able to think in other ways as the president. All right, that's fair. Okay. Next one, Tony Soprano. Okay, I can kind of see that, but tell me why. Because he's a leader. People respect him. Other countries would respect him. Being Tony Soprano. Um, Ferris Bueller. Ah, that's a good one. Thought of Ferris Bueller. That's a very good one. Clever, smart guy. I like that. Uh, you know, he's somebody that people like. He get things people, done. And people liked him, right? Uh, that's good. He can get along with people. I like that. That's a very good one. I, that's my 
favorite so far. And and the last one, Forrest Gump. You know, a lot of people picked Forrest Gump. Because everything just worked out for him. Yeah, yeah, okay. And no matter what he did, it, it worked out well. It's, that's true. It did work out for him. Okay. I, I, Maybe. You have one, Ken? Yeah, I'd probably go with Captain America. Fought in World War II. Also another popular You know, pick. leader of the Mighty Avengers. He's got the leadership qualities. I think he'd be a good pick. You know, a lot of people picked that. Um, I could see that. I could see it. A lot of people also pick Captain Planet. Um, but as far as Captain America goes, I used to read Captain America a little bit. I like Captain America. I think he's very patriotic. I think he's an admirable guy. I never got the impression. He's certainly brave. And even before he got all those superpowers, he was brave. But I never got the impression that he was terribly bright. I I always kind of got the impression that he was, I mean, I I don't know. He was just a soldier with a big shield. Again, I'm not taking anything away from that. But I don't even think he was an officer in the military. I think he was just... Yeah, and again, I'm not taking anything away from enlisted men. They've done a lot more for our country than I have. But was he that bright? Unless I'm missing something. He's no MacGyver. He's no MacGyver. That's true. 800-848-9222. If I could vote on everybody that we said here, I would vote for Ferris Bueller over Captain America. Uh, absolutely. No doubt about it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Mark is calling from upstate. Hello, Mark. Yes, uh, Frank. Thank you. Uh, my my uh, candidate would be uh, Arthur Branch. He was played by Fred, Fred Thompson. Thompson. On Order. Yeah, that's yes. another very popular pick. And in the in the show, I've never seen the show other than a couple of minutes here or there. In the show, um, Fred Thompson's character Arthur Branch. He was the Manhattan DA, right? Yes, he was. Well, you know what would be interesting, and if I, I know in real life Fred Thompson was a Republican. Is he a Republican on that show? Um, I don't know if he actually. Uh, or maybe uh, they never said. Yes. Okay. He doesn't exactly uh, claim it, but uh, he his his uh, behavior would lend itself to that. Okay, because he would have been the first Republican DA in Manhattan. Since Thomas Dewey and Thomas Dewey basically did take being a crime fighter in New York all the way to being a presidential candidate. He was able to use that as a platform to run for governor and then to run twice for uh, for president. That's a good pick. And that's one that a lot of people have suggested. Thank you, Mark. Alex Barnard is here. Hello, Alex. Hello, Frank. Who are you picking? Have you watched the show 24? I haven't. Uh, but I know who Jack Bauer is. I'm not picking Jack Bauer. I'm picking one of the presidents from the show. Okay. His name is David Palmer. He was the president in the first three or so seasons. He was a charismatic leader. He was a man who survived an assassination attempt oh. while he was running for president and after he had already been elected president. So technically, you know, he survived two assassinations. I like that. It's kind of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Right. Uh, who plays him? He, Dennis Haysbert, the guy who does the Allstate commercials. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I like um, that guy. And, and I mean, if, if we want to go this route, he was, in at least in their universe, the America's first black president. All, all right. Okay. So there you go. Maybe help bring racial harmony. That's, uh, that's not a bad pick. All right. So, so far we got Arthur Branch, Ferris Bueller, Tony Soprano, Captain America, uh, David Palmer, my pick of Professor Xavier, 
Um, and who was your other one, Matt, that I just failed to mention? MacGyver. Was, uh, MacGyver. Okay. Who do you pick? 800-848-9222. Gary is in Inwood. Uh, Gary, who would you pick? Uh, police commissioner from Blue Bloods, Frank Reagan, played by Tom Selleck. You know, I have never seen a full episode of that show, but in the clips that I've seen, I would agree with you. He, Tom Selleck, as that character, he does sort of exude a statesmanlike character uh, quality, doesn't he? Absolutely. May I add this too? You're missing a very, very good show. If you can catch on to it, I think you'd really enjoy it. It's on my list. It's on my list. Thank you, Gary. You know, I have, as I've said, hundreds of shows on this list that I've never seen. One uh, one minute of one episode of. Well, Blue Bloods I have seen a minute of, but I have not seen a whole episode. And um, when I'm either independently wealthy or unemployed, and I hope I'm not unemployed anytime soon, I am going to go through all these shows. I'm going to binge watch every single one of these shows. I'm going to set, you know, I'm going to set, you know, <laughs> it's funny. When I set the Guinness World Record for longest live TV talk show marathon, 33 hours, my friend Jay Diamond called me and left me a message. Afterwards, he says, you know, congratulations, because he had called into that show as, as an impersonator of George W. Bush. And it was very funny at the time. But he called me and left me a message. I don't even know if he remembers this, but he says, Frank, I'm actually going to be uh, setting a world record for myself. I'm going to be sleeping for 33 straight hours. I am going to put all these couch potatoes, all these TV watchers to shame for a week. In a week, I'm going to watch all these shows. Boom, 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 boom. going to catch up on years worth of TV in a week if I'm ever independently wealthy or unemployed. All right. Um, George is in New Jersey. Hello, George. Hello. I've got one for you. I think an unbelievably good president, Henry Fonda from Failsafe. Oh, he was a good he was a good president. I mean, his leadership, especially these days, uh, now that we're getting closer to uh, a nuclear war, God forbid. I think um, I think that is a a great pick. Uh, Do you remember the name of his character in that picture? I'll look it up if you don't. No, I don't. But I know how rational and conscience stricken he was. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Uh, that is a good one. Uh, maybe they didn't even say uh, his character's name, uh, but um, that was a great movie. You know what? People, they remade that a few years later, but um, it never really gets the, yeah, I don't even think they say the president's name in that. It never gets the acclaim. You know what I think it was a victim of, that picture, Failsafe? I think it came out uh, too soon after Dr. Strangelove. And I think it came out um, too soon after. Actually, yeah, it came out the same year as Doctor Strange Love, and I think people were in more of a mood to laugh following the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and the Kennedy assassination. They were more in a mood to laugh about that kind of thing than they were to think about how dangerous it would have been, meaning nuclear war and things of that nature. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Martha is on Staten Island. Hello, Martha. Good morning, Frank. Um, I elect Michael Douglas, the actor, to be president because he's 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 um, acted in so many different parts. He's very tough. He's got the persona. He's got the look, and he's got the chutzpah. But we're 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 picking fictional characters, though. Um. Do you want to I pick? Can't... You can you can pick his character from the American President, Andy Shepard. Okay, I'll take that. All right, Andy Shepard. Uh, again, a little bit too much. Again, I like him as a character, 
I think he's an admirable person, but his politics seem pretty much to be where Bill Clinton was. So uh, it's not really what I want to go back to. 800-848-9222. Although, I'll be honest, I don't know Professor Xavier's politics either, but I'm, I'm ready to elect him anyway. Uh, Dylan is in New Jersey. Hello, Dylan. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Uh, not I, too bad. Thank you. I wanted to pick Harry Callahan from Dirty Harry. Oh, Clint Eastwood's character. Absolutely. I, I think you make a great president. Tell me why. Well, he could think on his feet. Think about in the armed robbery. He was sitting there in the first movie eating a hot dog. Right away, he goes and walks out there, says that whole line off the top of his head, and knows exactly how many shots he took in that whole bit of drama. I do wonder, though, as president, do you think those skills would come in handy? I mean, he's not going to be stopping street crime as president. No, no, but I, I think, you know... The ability to be able to think on his feet. That's good. So, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's yeah, that, so that's similar to what Matt was saying about um, about MacGyver. Uh, oh, that make that makes sense. Make my day. I love Clint Eastwood. Bob is in Queens. Hello, Bob. Yeah, I, I was thinking about Al Bundy. About Al Bundy. If he comp- yeah, from uh, Married with children. children. Yeah, why? Uh, if he can put up with Peg, he can put up with a country. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a little, little humor. <laughs> I'll take it, Bob. I used to love that show. And, and and I'm sure you know, Bob, he scored three touchdowns in one game. Uh, John is in Goshen. Hello, John. Hello. Hello. I uh, said so Jay Spader, The Blacklist. Okay, so I've not seen that show. It's another one of these shows that's on my list. Tell me about James Spader's character and why he'd be a good president. Uh, he just had control of everything, anything in the underworld, you know, mafia-related, you know, all yeah. that. He just had control of everything. I, I mean, just, he had control of the United States in the show. Yeah, I was just thinking actually the same exact thing. Really? So his character is Raymond Reddington, and he's like a yeah. super criminal, and he's always three steps ahead. And he has oh. a, he has a deal with the FBI. He's on the FBI's most wanted list, but he has a secret deal with a secret task force oh, that's cool. that they give him that he gives them people on the blacklist, which are super criminals. Right. Well, that's a, and, yeah. and thank you, John. I like it. And we know that the FBI really does do that stuff, as we learned from the top echelon informant program with uh, Whitey Bulger and, um, you know, Greg Scarpa. I've done several episodes on the racket report that the FBI really does do that stuff. So that's interesting. 800-848-9222. Brandon in New Jersey has someone that I had on my initial list as well. Brandon, hello. Hey, Frank. Um, yeah, no, but I can't argue with that last suggestion. That's yeah. a, a great yeah. one. Uh, but yeah, no, Frazier, uh, I thought would be good because you know, he has a ther- the therapist background and a radio talk show host, so he knows how to talk and and uh, settle situations and just a strong character. I-, I like that pick a lot. And, you know, it's funny. And thank you, Brandon. My wife and I are watching Cheers now. I've seen Cheers, but she's never seen it. And we're almost done. And I'm torturing her with it. I, I feel terrible. But we're so close. I-, it's- I can't let her quit now. It'd be like stopping a marathon at the 24th mile. And we're in season 11, and there's a great episode in season 11 where uh, Woody, the bartender, played by Woody Harrelson, runs for city council in Boston, and his campaign manager is none other than Fraser Crane. And you know what? He's a pretty good campaign manager. So I think he may know a thing or two about, you know, about winning campaigns. Tom's in New Jersey. What do you got for us, Tom? 
How about Fred Sanford? You got to think of all the one-liners, man, when serious situations come at him. Well, but I, I certainly watched a lot of Sanford and Son, but why would Fred Sanford be a good president? You know, very easy, uh, you know, quick-witted, just a funny story, you know. So for humor. Stuff you can't say on the air. Humor purposes. Okay, you know, I mean, I feel like we kind of got that with Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump was as quick-witted as can be when it came to one-liners and things like that. I, I think you got a pretty good preview of the Fred Sanford administration with uh, with Donald Trump. Oh, Richard in New Jersey has someone else that I was thinking of. Hello, hello there, Richard. Yes, I was thinking of Atticus Finch. I think that's a great pick, Richard. Why? He just seems to be very honest. I guess that's one thing. He's got strong integrity. And he knows the law. He knows the legal system very well. He's willing to be independent. You know, he defended a black defendant when it was not popular to do so in the in the South. Tommy on Staten Island. Hello. Tony Stark. Uh, Iron Man. Iron Man. I like this a lot. Tell me why. I smart. Fence things, and he's not afraid to use force. And you know what else I like about him? He's he's wealthy. He's independently wealthy, and he's honest. Right. Meaning he doesn't need to kowtow to all these special interests to well, uh, to raise money, which I do like. But, but you might but you might not like the industrial military complex. Now oh, that's a fair point. That's a fair point, Tommy. Thank you. That's a good point. Carl in New Jersey. What do you got for us, Carl? Uh, the Harrison Ford character in Air Force One. Uh, I think he'd make a good president. A lot of people picked him. Why do you pick him? Because he he could uh, think quick on his feet. Because he was uh, downstairs in the plane, he was trying to figure out how to contact uh, the um, the White House after he was uh, caught downstairs in the in the in the luggage section of the airplane. He was trying to find a, a cell phone to contact the White House for help, and uh, and he captured a, a guy downstairs with a gun, and he started fighting his way back up through the plane. That's not bad. Okay, that's not bad. Robin in Maryland. Hello, Robin. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm thinking of James Earl Jones. Well, but James Earl Jones is a real person. Yes, but in some pictures he'd play the fictional character, such as Darth Vader. So you would want Darth Vader to be president? No, 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 no. But James Earl Jones, in his movies, I mean, every movie I've seen him in, he's been in command of something and handled it very well under pressure. Okay, all right, fair enough. Again, it was really limiting it to... Fictional characters. James Earl Jones actually did play uh, the president. Um, actually, no, he wasn't the president. He was the president pro tem of the Senate, who, through a series of unusual events, becomes the president or the acting president in a film called The Man, which is actually quite good. I really uh, I really enjoyed that picture. A lot of people don't know about it these days, but uh, I thought it was uh, it's good. It's short. It's a nice 93 minute movie. Um, we're going to do the thousand dollar minute in, in a bit, but, uh, Marianne in Indiana has been holding a while. Marianne, what's on your mind? Uh, I think Catwoman. Catwoman. How come? 
Well, uh, she seemed to be maneuvering all the high powers around pretty well. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, and you know what? Uh, Obi Murray just messaged me that nobody really mentioned any women so far. So you are the first person to mention a woman. Oh, wow. It's about time for uh, a, we had a female fictional president, right? Of course. Of course, Frank. Also, um, well, were you talking about the uh, October surprise? Right. I think uh, Ayatollah hated Carter, and uh, I think he, it was him. Well, I, I do, too. And look, we know that the Ayatollahs, and thanks for the call, Marion, uh, disliked Jimmy Carter. They viewed Carter as an ally of the Shah, which he was. And um, I don't think, even if the Reagan team did nothing, I don't think they were going to release these hostages while Carter was president. And uh, it's just interesting that the Reagan folks went to this extra length to make sure that was the case, apparently. All right, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. If you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, you'll have a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Answer them all correctly, and you will be $1,000 richer. Simple as that. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Go ahead and call 800-848-9222. Seventh caller, you'll get an opportunity to play the $1,000 minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. This song is obviously from Ferris Bueller. Uh, Matt, does this song have a name? It's actually just called Oh Yeah. Oh Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Well, very it's by Yellow. All right. Very, that's uh, makes sense to me. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, uh, just join our Facebook group. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Uh, there are a number of people taking issue with just about everything we're doing on there, and I wouldn't have it any other way. More power to you, including some people think it might be time to retire the... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Well, um, let's meet today's contestant, and hopefully this person wins, and that will put a lot of the naysayers to, to rest. Rich in New Jersey. Hello, Rich. Rich, I got you. Uh, we lost Rich. Uh, so uh, pick another. Uh, pick another person. Whoever's next. 
uh, pick, pick as the $1,000 minute person. Uh, some other people texting me. David from Baldwin says he likes Tom Hagen for president. That's okay. Um, Mark Z says he likes Dwight Manfredi for president, the Stallone character in Tulsa King. Another person writing, the mighty Thor would be the perfect president. Again, I'm not sure that he's constitutionally eligible to uh, to hold the position, right? I mean, I don't think it's too much to ask just to pick someone that's constitutionally eligible. All right. Um, and we're going to get – those of you that are holding, we'll try and get to you after the $1,000 minute as well. Meantime, I want to thank uh, my friend Arthur Idala. He's He does a radio show. He's a famous def- defense attorney. He's a very close friend of mine. He's one of my closest friends. And he does a radio show on another station, AM 970 in New York. And his guest this week, or last week, Friday, was one of my guests, uh, was uh, John Katsimatidis, who I interviewed on Monday. And I didn't get to hear that interview until yesterday. And sure enough, they do a very good interview, talking with John about his book and so forth. And um, my name comes up. And listen to what Arthur says. Listen to what John says. I was very... Very complimented that both of these men said such nice things. And it's uh, anyone who listens to this show, uh, Mr. Katsimatidis, knows that uh, including myself, and I don't want to be disrespectful to you, but I believe that Frank Morano has the best radio program in the nation right now. I think he is fantastic. He is a a pretty good, he's a good guy. Don't forget, he was my producer. I'm aware. I I created the show, The Other Side of Midnight. And, uh, you know, and we both like the same things. I told him to talk about all the mysterious things in life. Uh, and uh, uh, it keeps people away. Uh, hopefully he's right. So I appreciated that. And uh, John did come up with the name of the show, and we came up with the concept of the show together uh, to explore some of the mysteries of the universe that are out there, whether they're cultural, whether they're social, whether they're related to aliens, conspiracies, or anything else, anything that's unsolved. All right, 800-848-9222. Marie on Long Island will play the $1,000 Minute today. Hello, Marie. <laughs> I'm so happy. I I I I met my goal to try to beat Cole Sever since I've listened to you for a while now. Wonderful. Okay. Well, so you know you know the rules of how to play, right? I do. I hope I get far. Oh, I'm sure you will. Uh, just believe in yourself. You're going to be fine. Don't get nervous. And if the answer seems obvious, it is. Okay. You're the best friend. Right. You are. Thank you. Go ahead. Ready. Um. You're wh- welcome. What? How many seasons are there in a year? What color are polar bears? White. What former U.S. president indicated he's likely to be indicted by the Manhattan DA? That's Mr. Donald Trump. How many stripes are on the American flag? Oh, my goodness. I should know this. The the 14 colonies, 14... Oh, my God, I lost. I'm sorry, Marie. 17. 13. 13. 13. I was close. Yes. For oh, the, my gosh. The 13 original okay. uh, states. That's why there's 13. Okay. 13 stri- I'm sorry you didn't win, Marie. I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information. We're going to send you something. Yeah, uh, 50 stars because we have 50 stars currently. And there's uh, 13 stripes because of the original 13 states. I used to have a necktie. Which was uh, was one of my favorite neckties. I had it from the time I was about sixteen 
until four years ago. And it was a black necktie. Really cool. I don't know who made it. I don't know what brand it was. And it had all the different versions of the American flag over the years. I loved it. And then, lo and behold, um, my wife and I, she was my girlfriend at the time, or my fiancé at the time. My fiancé at the time, now my wife, we went down, we drove down to Washington, D.C. to for an event that my sister had, for my sister's graduation, actually. Because she went to Georgetown, which for some reason on the air, I always call George Washington. But she did go to Georgetown. And I was had this necktie, but I hadn't yet put it on. And I lost it somewhere. Somewhere between our car and our hotel room, I lost this necktie. And I've looked in a whole bunch of different places for a necktie like this. And I can't find it. So, uh, I... but. The important thing is, keep in mind, if you ever need to know how many stripes are on the flag, same number as original states. All right. You're welcome to comment on anything you like. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Oh, there's one thing that I do want to mention. Uh, I've I've alluded to this before, but the... I've talked about when I went to when I went to school, it was a common thing that if you didn't like what they were serving at um, at hot lunch or something like that, you'd always have the option of getting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. These days, you can't even bring a peanut butter and jelly sandwich into school because there's so many peanut allergies. So um, the early guidance from the experts, whoever the experts happen to be, was keep your children away from peanuts at a young age and things of that nature. And they hopefully that'll keep them from developing peanut allergies and they won't have an allergic reaction if they are allergic. Now the guidance is very different. And the guidance over the last few years has become the exact opposite, meaning expose your children to peanuts. And that's certainly something that we've done with, uh, with Carmine. We were giving him this uh, spoonful one, which is a whole bunch of different allergens, microdose that we'd spoon into his food. And he, um, you know, and hopefully he, does, he develops sort of an, a, an immunity or a resistance to uh, having an allergy to any of them. But they stopped selling it to the United States because not enough people in the United States were buying it. So um, the next thing that we could get is what the a lot of the children in Israel eat called Bomba, which are delicious, even for adults. They're a delicious snack. I don't know if you ever tried this. I'm surprised it's actually not more popular in this country because it's delicious, especially if you like peanuts, which I do. Basically, Bomba, it looks like a cheese doodle, a puffed cheese doodle, but it's much healthier than cheese doodles. It's picture a peanut-flavored, a peanut-flavored cheese doodle. That's what it is. It's delicious. So we give Carmine those. He eats those all day long. They're pretty healthy. And um, and the hope is that that will help him develop, you know, not uh, avoid an allergy. Why are we talking about this? Well, a study that fed babies small tastes of smooth peanut butter. You ready for this? Prepare to be amazed. 
a study that fed babies small tastes of smooth peanut butter reduced peanut allergy cases by 77%. This is a study done by the UK. That's real. That's very significant. So this only reinforces my resolve that the proper way to handle peanuts and children is to give them that peanut butter early on. Give them peanuts early on, whether it's in the form of bomba or something else. I really believe that. And this is has has solidified that for me. But, you know, you do what you want. But if we have another child, we're going to do the same thing. We'll hopefully, uh, you know, be in a position to give him peanut butter so he doesn't develop a peanut allergy. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything that we're talking about, including what I had raised about uh, what president would be a good fictional character. By the way, speaking of my son, Carmine, I don't know if every toddler is like this. So in three days, he'll be 16 months old. He is obsessed with ceiling fans. Obsessed. We don't have any ceiling fans in our house, but um, when we go to my dad's, for instance, he's got a ceiling fan in the in the uh, family room. He demands that it be turned on. He stares up at it and just goes, uh, uh, until it gets turned on. Th- then he will crawl up the stairs and go into all the bedrooms and make sure the ceiling fans are on in all those bedrooms. And then he'll just stare at these ceiling fans. We go to, uh, we went to my neighbor John Charles's St. Patrick's Day party a week or two ago. And he has a ceiling fan in his kitchen. And Carmine loved that. So a couple of days ago, we're all hanging out outside, all my neighbors and me. And Carmine wants to go in the house. And John Charles said, yeah, go ahead. Let him in the house. He can go in. So he and his mother go in. He remembered where the ceiling fan was in John Charles's house. And he made my wife turn it on. And then he tried to go into the bedrooms and find the ceiling fans there. And my wife said, okay, this is not our house. We don't live here. You can't just go into all these bedrooms that aren't yours and turn on the ceiling fan. But for some reason, this, I don't know if everybody is like this, the kid loves ceiling fans. And initially we were thinking about getting one because he likes them so much. But now we're not going to get one because he's so obsessed he would demand that we keep them on all the time. Um, even when my wife, she has this, uh, video conferencing technology that iPhone users have. I think it's uh, FaceTime. She'll FaceTime my, uh, sister-in-law. She'll FaceTime my, my, my sister. And she, they'll sometimes have ceiling fans in the background of where they are. And Carmine will say, turn, turn. And initially we thought he was saying, my turn, meaning it's his turn to do something, which we thought was odd because we don't usually use that phrase around him a lot. But he, what he's saying is turn it on, meaning turn the ceiling fan on. So the child is obsessed with ceiling fans. We went out to dinner on Sunday for my Uncle Steve's birthday and my wife's birthday. Carmine was so upset that the room we were in had no ceiling fan. So the waiter turns the ceiling fan on we're all freezing, but he's happy only for a time because he could see that there was a ceiling fan in the other room in the restaurant that was not turned on. And that just, I think, ruined his dinner, quite frankly. 
Tom is in New Jersey. What's on your mind, Tom? Hey, I was thinking uh, Denzel Washington from uh, uh, Man on Fire would be a great president. You know, I never saw that one, but tell me why. Oh, uh, man, number one, that's a, my favorite movie, phenomenal movie. Well, he's a, he's a, you know, an ex-CIA contract killer or something, and the, the way he negotiates and gets people to do what he wants is uh, would be a good uh would be a funny thing to see. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, Greg is in Rockaway. We'll make you the last one on this, Greg. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, yeah, I would like the president from uh, Independence Day, the movie. I forget the actor's name. but Bill Pullman uh, is the very actor. inspirational. Okay. Yeah, yeah he was he inspirational. Look, he rallied the world to, uh, to, to fight against aliens. If that's not inspiration, I don't know what is. All right, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. If you want to be heard on any subject, including this one, the the fictional characters as presidents, you're welcome to be heard at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Thank you, Andy B. All right, we'll end this show as we end every show by giving you the opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds, 800-848-9222. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike. Mike. Russ. Why is this deceptive Broadway play about Leo Frank being revived now? The answer is Israeli Zionists are poised to wage aggressive war in the Middle East. But I'd like to see Carmine the Baby from Family Guy as president. That's stupid. Jack. Uh, Lucio Ball for president. We can accept one of the biggest criminals in American history to become a president that cheated his way through. Then Lucio Ball would make a perfect president. Raji. Hello, thank you. A real judge uh, uh, may always be addressed a judge, but a WABC co-host, for example, with a PhD from a now defunct diploma Millie, cannot. Roger. You know, I wonder if in a few years Carmine's going to like airplane propellers, the helicopter propellers, and I wonder if he. I wonder if he likes a regular stand-up fan. It's a good question. Uh, no, not that we've seen. Frank Moreno. Good day.